Tuesday, September 27. One of the all-time great songs. Where to begin? The wheels are literally coming off. You know, it's amazing. Um, On the one hand, you see all the talking heads screaming. But I actually think there's remarkable complacency out there. I know people are going to yell at me, like, what are you talking about? You know, we haven't really seen the VIX blow out. It's been kind of orderly. Yeah, I know the market went down 11% in 10 days or whatever it did. But we haven't seen total puke. And that still lies ahead of us, in my humble opinion. You know, as the eminent philosopher Yogi Berra once said, predictions are difficult, particularly about the future. And we never try to pick the daily or weekly wiggles and jiggles or monthly wiggles and jiggles in this room. But we've had a consistent message the entire year. The equities represent return-free risk. You should avoid risk assets. Did I predict that the pound was going to blow up? Hell no. Did I predict that it was going to be a counter-turn rally in the summer months? Hell no. But you know, in a world where everyone tries to get the short term so right, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. Instead, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the prize. It's hard enough getting direction right. Trying to time this thing is next to impossible. We've got a phenomenal room today. Um, we've got Mr. Blonde, who's got one of the best Twitter feeds out there. Strongly urge you to follow him if you haven't already. I've been a Secret admirer of his for a long time. We finally got to get to, to, to know each other. We spoke on the phone a couple times. And Michael Howell, I'm going to embarrass him, but um, he needs to uh, come on up to the stage because, you know, Michael, it seems like it was yesterday. It was October last year. I was in your office in London, and you were banging the liquidity drum, and you were so right, and you were right for the right reasons. And so we're all very grateful for your insights and to your updated thoughts. Then the other Michael. Michael Belkin. If we got Michael Cantworth in here, we'd have all the Michaels. Michael Belkin has just completely crushed it. People want to throw tomatoes at him lately because he got the bond call, right? Okay, fine. But, you know, <laughs> his returns this year are sick, absolutely sick. And if you're not following Michael Belkin or Michael Howell, definitely got to follow him. I'm going to start. Um, I want to play something. Uh, Rick Santelli went on a rant the other day and, um, it's a one minute rant and I thought it was pretty good. And to me, uh, Rick Santelli's the only one on bubble vision has half a brain and he kind of hit the nail on the head and, um, you know, fellow talking heads on CNBC don't want to hear it, but I'm just going to start by playing this link. It's a minute, it's a minute and a half. And then, Mr. Bond, we're going to get right into it. So bear with me for one second, please. Bond markets for a very long time. Yeah, it's not only modern uh, monetary theory. It was never a good idea. It was a, a stupid idea. And, and we're seeing living proof of that. You can't print forever and think you can get away with it. Look at what the pound's doing. But I think if there's a lesson to be learned here, it's the fact that central bankers in general and governments in particular have this unique relationship that we need to find a way to separate. And it isn't necessarily a political relationship. It's an enabling relationship. They are enablers. 
by these low interest rates and hanging out at zero for so long, they allowed governments to do anything. They allowed companies to remain that should have died. They ruined the entire infrastructure of global finance. And to think that it's going to come together easily or if central banks have any plan, there is no way to put this Humpty Dumpty back together. There needs to be lots of financial destruction first. And from that, the Arizona will rise. The best fertilizer for the global economy right now is for all of these issues, whether it's foreign exchange, government debt, corporates, all of these financial instruments have to be pushed down to some level that represents true risk to value returns versus the pie in the sky valuations and returns that many were getting with virtually no risk. So on that happy note, Mr. Blonde, welcome. Pleasure to uh, have you. It's great, George. Thanks awesome. for having me. Appreciate awesome. it. So um, you got a lot of fans in the room. You got a big room here already. And um, you've got one of the best Twitter feeds uh, out there. My hat's off to you. Um, I know you're in the federal witness protection program, so people don't need to know who you are in real life. It doesn't matter. Um, so I don't know where to begin with all this. Um, you've, you called this. And so maybe a good place to start. I want to get into where you have a, you know, a differentiated point of view. And again, we've got Michael Howe, Michael Belkin. I see, uh, um, Michael, uh, cows in the room as well. Well, Michael, Michael seems to be the, the name of the day. A lot of smart cookies, but maybe just set the table, Mr. Blonde. Um, you know, how are you seeing things coming into the year, how it's progressed, you know, according to your expectations, what you got, what, what you got wrong. And where do you think we go from here? And we'll just, we'll just roll with it. So Mr. Blonde, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I've gotten some things right, but there's definitely some things I've gotten wrong. So, uh, look, I think around this time last year, um, I started to kind of talk about the idea that the Fed, you know, would be hiking into a cyclical slowdown. I mean, and, and the, the gist of it was basically, you know, kind of predicated on the, the Fed was, you know, kind of starting too late in the cycle uh, for the, the kind of rate hikes that they that they needed to do. I, you know, we, I don't want to play Monday morning quarterback, but in my opinion, they should have started um, the process of, of unwinding accommodation, you know, let's say first quarter of 2021 post you know, vaccine announcement. Um, I think there was, the, you know, there was plenty of evidence to suggest that that would have made a lot more sense. Um, but whatever, it is what it is. They decided instead of going early and slow uh, to go late and fast, um, you know, at a time when it became increasingly clear that the uh, profit growth picture uh, was going to change, had already started to change. Actually, if you if you look at uh, within markets throughout 2020, uh, 21, we already had a number of markets showing fatigue um, peaking, you know, in the first quarter of 2021 and, and fading, um, particularly non-U.S. markets, um, as well as, you know, some of the kind of smaller cap, you know, speculative parts of the market. Um, so, you know, when I think about tightening of financial conditions, I, I think of it as, as, you know, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Um, one is to raise the discount rate. And then all of the associated moves that happen with that, including dollar, wider credit spreads um, and, and, and impacts on that end. I mean, and the other way that financial conditions are tightening is if you have uh, genuine profit growth weakness. Um, that's more of an organic way of uh, financial conditions tightening. And, and when the Fed is hiking into a cyclical slowdown, uh, they're both, you know, you're burning both ends of the candle 
Uh, and when that happens, um, I think the imp- the way I think about it is the impact on markets um, uh, happens faster, right? And so um, that's a function of you get multiple compression at the same time that you realize that you no longer have uh, the growth you know factor or growth momentum you know working in your favor. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to fall a lot, but if it's not going up, um, then then you know equities basically become a ne- negative carry asset um, if you want to think of it that way. So that was, you know, kind of what I started to see in the you know fourth quarter of last year, um, you know. And then I, you know, I, the other thing that I've talked about that I I think you know kind of sets the stage is you know we entered the year, you know, basically peak liquidity, right? Thirty year real rates, you know, in December of last year were minus fifty basis points. I mean, sort of wrap your head around that. Uh, you had peak valuation, um, S and P, but a bunch of other markets. You know, trading, you know, basically at valuation multiples that were. Um, you know, you know, near, you know, 20, 30, you know, 40 year highs. And I'm obviously related to that peak liquidity, um, you know, after, you know, to, to your, you know, clip on, on Santoli, I, I think that the, the term enabler is the right way to think about it. Um, you know, we had, you know, 10 you know, to 15 years of, of enabling um, certain type of behavior. Uh, and, you know, in that sense, you know, many markets, you know, were probably priced appropriately in the context of what they were, um, what they were offered. And what they were given, and that's just you know it is what it is. But when the conditions change, kind of have to, uh, you know, like uh, Kane said, you know, when the data changes, you have to change your you know, change your view. Um, but so peak liquidity, peak valuation, uh, and peak earnings. I mean, S and P five hundred to use that as the proxy, where we just have the the longest history and the cleanest you know history is um you know came into the year twenty five percent above trend. Um, you know, fast forward to today, I would say that I think on peak liquidity. And peak valuation, we've made a lot of progress. Um, these are no longer, I mean, I don't think anybody believes that, uh, that these are supports at, you know, uh, anymore. Um, you know, valuation, we've had you know, a pretty meaningful sort of valuation reset you know, with, with uh, most major equity indices, at least at you know, measures of long-term average, um, in some cases, maybe a little bit below. Uh, and on the liquidity front, I mean, just, you know, look at any, you know, major, you know, bond market um, or front end market. And I think it's pretty clear that liquidity conditions have changed, you know, pretty dramatically from where they were uh, this time last year. So what did I get right? I mean, I think I got right that it was going to be a brutal market environment uh, and that we were going to have a proper correction and that this Fed cycle would be different than the you know, kind of 1990s, 2000 Fed cycles where when the Fed's hiking that, you know, stocks go up, as, you know, many people suggested late last year. Um, uh, and, I, and I think I got right that the, you know, pace of earnings uh, momentum would slow dramatically this year and increasingly look like we have negative growth late this year or early 2023, which is what, you know, the, the model um, I use, you know, suggests. I think I got right that you'd see things like PMIs, you know, roll over. And obviously that weighs on um, all kinds of measures of cyclicality uh, in the market. I think what I've gotten wrong, um, well, you know, sort of half right, half wrong. I mean, the first, you know, four or five months of the year, um, I stayed away from, you know, fixed income and focused primarily on, you know, cyclicals versus defensives. You know, in May, I wrote a note called, uh, you know, from Fed hikes to growth cuts. Uh, and my thought process there was that the narrative would start to, you know, shift from being one where the market was hyper-focused on uh, inflation and how much of the Fed had to, had to hike 
to start, you know, shifting and thinking about, you know, the impact of these hikes and the tightening of financial conditions and what that ultimately was going to result, you know, what that was going to mean for economic conditions, profit conditions, market conditions. I mean, I think that was, that was, that's kind of right. I mean, that sort of has happened. I mean, I think what I was wrong about is I thought that that would lead to, um, you know, a little bit more support in the back end uh, of fixed income, even if the front end, you know, kind of stayed, you know, challenged. I mean, when I think of, I think of fixed income markets and, you know, this is not, you know, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself an expert in this space. But you know, I think of the yield curve, I think of like inflation and policy in the front and growth in the back. Um, and, you know, probably what I what I did not trade well this year is that, you know, the fixed income view that I had probably should have been vis-a-vis a flattener rather than, you know, thinking about, you know, um, buying long end bonds for, you know, um, the growth view. Um now, when I bought bonds, I wasn't you know all in. It was more of like a, a toe in, but um, that was that was definitely something I got wrong. So I, you know, that's look. That's where I'll open it up. I'll, we we uh, we'll go back and forth on a lot of different yeah, stuff. No, that, but... that, 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 that's great. So um, you've gotten so many things right, um, and much of what's happened hasn't been much of a surprise to you at all. So where do you think we go from here? I mean, as I said at the outset, I you know I, I remain I'm. I'm unabashedly bearish. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, uh, it takes two to make a market, but what's your take from here? And what do you think the, what do you think the market is? What do you think the consensus views are that are out there that the market's got wrong? Like, where do you differ from consensus right now? Well, yeah, look, I mean, I definitely think that's a little bit, I, I definitely, I personally find it a little bit harder today than I did say in January. Cause I, I feel like my views in, you know, December, January of last year were, we're further away from where most people are. And I'm not saying that everybody's um, bearish. And frankly, even if everybody was uh, concerned, that doesn't mean the market's going up. <laughs> so it doesn't, you know, I don't think that's not how I think about things. I mean, there's this thing called fair value, um, which, you know, ultimately was more important than sentiment. Um, I think that, uh, I think that we're, the, the, I've categorized the trading environment as sort of being one step forward, two steps back. Um, you know, and, and your sell rallies and, you know, obviously like, look, we're all, you know, uh, trying to make sure that we don't get caught, you know, with our pants down, you know, in a, in a, in a nasty short squeeze. And, and those are something you kind of have to respect those in, in bear markets for sure. Um, I, I think the Michael Howell posted a, a, a chart today, which is very similar to the way that, you know, I think about, you know, fair value, uh, in equities and sort of using S&P 500. But I mean, with triple B corporate credit yields at 6% um, and you have an earnings environment that, you know, um, now is, you know, you have negative revisions and increasingly looks like we could have negative uh, earnings growth in 2023, 20, if not sooner. Um, I mean, that puts a lot of downward pressure on quote unquote fair value, um, you know, fair value equity price. Um, so, I mean, I, I kind of have, you know, kind of self-circled, you know, like the 3,000 to 3,200 zone. Um, that's with, a you know, a, I think a pretty, you know, somewhat maybe conservative, you know, earnings, you know, 2023 earnings number of $200. It could definitely be less than that. Um, could be more like 190. Um, and in, in, in a bad situation, could be lower than that even. Um, I think I think in terms of thinking about you know wh- how things prog- you know how things progress and like what is the quote unquote fair value of the market as that takes shape. I mean it does it does matter a little bit um, what the sort of the Fed's reaction function is 
to that weak or negative growth environment. And uh, I wrote about this recently. And, you know, George, and, you know, you and I talked about this is, I think, one of the things that's a little bit, I don't know if I'd call it out of consensus, but maybe this is not something that people have really digested yet. I think that, you know, one of the clear, you know, shifts in, in messaging from the Fed was that they're sort of accepting uh, or expecting and accepting, rece- you know, recession conditions uh, in order to solve the inf- inflation problem. And to me, that sounds like, you know, a pretty challenging environment and that when when growth does actually start to, you know, we see negative ticks or we see, you know, more FedEx type situations. Um, and in that environment, the Fed's not doing what they've done for the last, you know, 15 to 20 years, which is, you know, quote unquote, pivot or start to um, show signs of easing. If they hold the line on that, um, there's no life preservers, you know, thrown out for anybody who's overboard. Uh, and I think that that's an environment and that opens a window where you could get some pretty nasty price action. Um, I'm keeping a much closer eye on what happens in credit. I think, you know, some of the things that we've seen happen in the last, you know, three or four days, you'll probably highlight, you know, a feature of this bear market that we haven't seen to date. You know, the, the Sunday afternoon, um, you know, surprise, you know, and, you know, in the pound. And, and that's you know, just one example. I'm sure we'll have more before this is all said and done. But those types of events have not been a feature um, to date. And I think that's that's probably an important, um, you know, a signpost of, of, of what's changing. Uh, in addition to, you know, kind of the message that I think the Fed has delivered, you know, Powell kind of first said it at Jackson Hole and then I think underscored it um, at the last meeting. Right. So, you know, we're in this mess already and we haven't really had a, you know, a major credit event. Okay, the UK is blowing up small little irrelevant. Sorry, Michael Howell, but you'll get your chance in a second. But, you know, we, we, the, the, the real pyrotechnics haven't even started yet. And a lot of assets have gotten completely smashed. So I kind of wonder what it's going to look like as spreads start to widen out. Um, and then when you think about the trajectory of economic growth from here, the fact that, you know, mortgage rates in the U.S., I think they were, they were through 7% to 7.1%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... <laughs> My, my, my partner happens to be a real estate agent, so we, took, we get a mark-to-market on uh, Westchester Real Estate every night. But, you know, the idea that a mortgage, a 3% mortgage is, is now t- turned from being a liability to an asset. I mean, the fact that people, you know, can they afford to move now? Because uh, good luck taking out a mortgage. So anything that's credit-based, buying a car, buying a house, I mean, kind of makes you wonder. Like, I'm intellectually drawn to the idea that the, the 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 economic growth surprises from here and the attendant earnings uh, disappointments are going to be you know very much the downside and I know both Michael Howell and Michael Belkin will weigh in on this but what's your take as to you know if you were going to a client I want to get to some discrete ideas if you're going to a client a new client right you hang your shingle they don't think you're a smart guy because you got this year right they don't think you're an idiot because you got one of your trades wrong and you got a clean sheet of paper all right. Um, what would you tell them to do? Or are we at a place right now where it's kind of awkward because you've gotten richly paid for so many of your calls and we're kind of in this high volatility transition phase and it's just not a good local entry point for, for certain trades. So I don't know, maybe you want to answer that question from the perspective of could be like, you know, really short term, maybe things bounce, it's been overcooked, but looking at lower, well, how, how would you go about answering that? Yeah, look, I, I, I think you have to ask yourself, so okay, so if I'm if I'm mostly right on on earnings in 2023, if we agree that you know a 200 dollar number 
is a is a fair number. That means that the S and P is trading at eighteen times today, right? And so eighteen times, you know, get you like, you know, like the the five percent earnings yield. Well, I mean, why 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 are you taking on five percent earnings yield in a in a still risky environment when you get four and a third in two year notes, right? So I mean, to me, like this is a little bit of this. Is why I said you get paid to wait. I mean, it's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to get super rich off it. I just don't think this is an environment to, you know, try to get rich. I think this is an environment to preserve capital. Uh, it has been all year, frankly. And now, actually, one of the things that's interesting, I mean, late in the year, is the Fed is offering you, um, you know, decent returns on risk-free, zero-vol um, assets. I mean, what I would say tongue-in-cheek is, you know, if you could, if I had the if I had the ability, I would say I'd, I would love to have no positions right now. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. like that's the environment we're in. But but that's kind of what I'm saying is, I mean, like cash is basically you know not having a position. Um, and in this case, you get paid, you know, foreign change. Um, doesn't seem so bad. So that would suggest that assets need to reprice to offer more competitive returns. Yeah. I, yeah, you know, I, I love one quick point because this maybe will resonate with a lot of people, and I, I you know, I'm not. I, I think one way to think about it is if you just think of the efficient frontier, right? I think everybody has seen this. It's you know, whatever it's like CFA level one type thing or MBA. I mean, what's happening is the efficient frontier is flattening, but that flattening is coming from the front end, right? And so you know, this is just the the sort of the QE dynamic uh, in reverse. I mean, the way that the whole QE thing worked. You know, and, and, and rate cuts in general work, you know, is you basically you lower the front end of the efficient frontier to make the stuff in the back end of the efficient frontier look more attractive. Right. Well, now you have a flattening curve, maybe in some cases inverted curve where the you know, the, the assets that are in the mid to back end of the efficient frontier don't look so um, attractive relative to zero vol cash. Now, it's complicated by the fact that we're you know, in a cyclical growth slowdown, so you don't really have the air cover of growth or earnings to sort of, you know, help you earn whatever that expected return is. Uh, so, you know, I think one of two things have to happen. Either you need time in order for those assets to, uh, you know, kind of mature and, and become more attractive, you know, naturally, or they have, to your point, they have to fall in price uh, to get cheap and attractive. And it seems like the, the latter is more likely than the former. Can I slip my wrist now? <laughs> All right. So um, one of the things, let's talk about time, the element of time. Uh, as has been spoken about in these rooms quite a lot, and I can't remember who coined the phrase, time kills more people than price. One feature of this liquidity-driven great moderation that we've had is whenever we had corrections, they've just been corrections. And then, you know, the bartender, the Fed, they come and they spike the punch bowl again and up we go. And for all the reasons we know, sticky inflation, you know, higher rates, yada, yada, they can't do that this time. And so what would you say to the idea? It's not just that, you know, earnings going to fall and equity is going to decline. And I happen to think that they're going to fall a lot more than people anticipate. And I'll let the other Michaels weigh in on that. But I want to focus on the idea of time. That as long, you know, people have been, you know, pain is temporary. BF Skinner, please call your office. And, you know, we go back to our normally scheduled programming of, you know, you know FOMO and, and, and buying. But what would you, how would you respond to the notion if I assert, you know what? That regime is done. Done. That was a surreal, unusual, highly unusual time in history. And 
The problem is you've had a whole generation of investors who've been conditioned in the post-GFC environment and, and been weaned on that, and, and, and I think that's normal. And it, well, how would you respond to the notion that it's not just that you know earnings are 25% above trend and we've come out of, you know, people are squawking about, oh, this is the fastest rate of increase in interest rates, you know, ever, and blah, 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 blah. Um, well, all we're really doing is going back to, you know, if you look at where real rates are and you look at where nominal rates are, I mean, you know, you'd say they could still go higher. And everyone keeps, well, they can't go higher. The economy's going to blow up. But what I want to get to is the concept of time. It's time that kills. When people give up hope, that they see FOMO does, that, that you, know, you know, buy the dip. It doesn't work anymore. How, and maybe this is too much of a cosmic, big picture bullshit question. How would you re respond to the notion that, you know what, whatever we're going to see, it's going to be extended in duration. You're just, you know, we're going to go down and we're going to stay down. What would you say to that, Mr. Blonde? Yeah, look, I mean, I, well, I mean, I think that that's the, you know, that's what differentiates a bear market from something that's just a correction, right? Um, I do think that there's an element in, and, and maybe some of that um, were, you know, sort of witnessing the last couple of weeks. Cause I mean, I, I can think of all of the people who were adamant that, you know, the June low was the low and all the breath thrust buyers in mid August. And now here we are, you know, whatever it is, you know, 12, 15% later in markets and a bunch of key markets have already made new lows. Um, you know, at some point you move, you know, into the acceptance phase of, of a decline and that people then just accept that it is, you know, not what they thought it was. Um, and or, you know, it's not a single factor, uh, you know, kind of problem. Um, I mean, I. Yes, I mean, I, I think that that's an, it's a, it, time is, is, is a, an important feature. And I think an earnings driven declines, which I think is the phase that we're in now, unfortunately, they do tend to um, they tend to be measured in quarters, not in like weeks or months. You know, when the Fed is hiking rates or you're you know, taking liquidity out of the system, those things can you know, tend to happen uh, very quickly. Uh, it's a slap you in the face you know, type of, of situation. On the earnings front, it's, it's something, you know, you, you get an update four times a year, maybe a couple of conferences in between, but there's always this, you know, kind of constant um, leaning against, you know, the idea that earnings are going to be lower. People tend to get anchored to consensus numbers, but the reality is, is consensus, consensus numbers in aggregate don't really change until they're told to change. I mean, where are all the guys on, on FedEx, right? They had like $5.30 or, or whatever it was, and then FedEx comes in and tells you, you know, a few weeks later that like, Oh, by the way, it's 33% less than that. So um, it doesn't, it doesn't happen as quickly as we would like it to happen. Cause we all have sort of this, you know, immediate satisfaction when you, when you trade markets, unfortunately it's a little bit more like death by paper cuts. It just is one of these things that is a little bit more methodical and each quarter you end up finding out that it's a little bit less than you thought before, or you, you get reports that, you know, beat numbers that were taken down by six or 7% in the, you know, in the month prior, everybody gets excited for a week and then realize that we go back to, you know, the crappy macro environment. Um, and so look, I mean, I think the other important thing, which I just mentioned is, you know, you now have an asset, the front end of, of you know, of cat, you know, cash, you know, is your, your, you're paid to wait until the cloud's clear. That's, you know, in the last 15 years, that was, that was, that was never the case, right? I mean, we never really had, you know, that on offer. So, you know, that was part of what I think drove the, the, the flip back into market so quickly because, you know, the opportunity set elsewhere uh, wasn't there. Um, and now you have a, 
you know, the Fed who's who's giving to you and then also, com- you know, at least verbally committing to staying there for a while. So that's different. Right. So um, I want to get to uh, a couple of the Michaels and also uh, so we got Mark Newman in here as well. So before I'm going to have Michael Howell ask the next question, and then Michael Belkin, but because um, you and Michael Howell look at the world similarly. But the last question before Michael Howell speaks. So, Mr. Ball, I just want to repeat for everyone in the room that didn't hear it. For the average investor, so I always try to like, you know, figure out for the average person what should they be doing. You kind of like cash right now. Is that is that is that the, just to repeat? Is that is that what you're saying, Mr. Blond? Yeah, I would. I mean, I would say cash. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I'm noodling on, and I haven't I haven't really written about this or or whatever. I've I've generally favored, you know, kind of a long defensive, short cyclical, you know, profile. I don't think it's. I certainly don't think that it's appropriate to go long cyclicals, but um, I think the price action in in defensive parts of the market is 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 looking you know, less appealing. I mean, and the valuation profile of a lot of these assets is looking less appealing, particularly in light of, um, you know, the, the quote unquote, most offensive asset, you know, when you think about, you know, cash, right? I mean, if I look at something like utilities um, are now, you know, uh, yielding less than two year cash, or you, you look at, you know, consumer staples, and these categories now they have relative valuation profile that's you know basically akin to Nasdaq relative valuation. That makes for a much more difficult environment. I mean, I think that this is ultimately how you you end up in quote unquote bear markets. I mean, for the first six months of the year, we correctly all find little pockets of the market that we think we can hide out in, um, and and to you know to kind of you know, get us to the other side. Um, but then as things you know, kind of don't get better and as time passes and new information comes along, i.e., you know, cash rates are higher, all of a sudden um, even your defensive stuff looks too expensive for the environment. Um, you know, it becomes know, a much trickier environment. And Mr. Blonde, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear you're Michael Belkin's kid brother. Uh, we're going to have Michael Belkin start speak in a minute. But let's go to Michael Howe. You, you two guys, uh, different continents, but very similar view. I know uh, Michael Howe is a paid up fan of yours as well so welcome michael the floor is yours michael how yeah hi hi george hi everybody uh let me say this yeah i'm a great fan of mr blonde i think uh, excellent work uh i much enjoy reading uh reading his twitter feed i think encourage everyone to do that uh let, let me give an update on my views i'm i'm very negative near term uh some of the things you can see in the fixed income markets are downright ugly they're some of the worst things i think i've ever seen I'll come on to that in a second. Um, cash or the front end of the yield curve is the best place near term. The Fed's paying you over 4% pretty much to be there. So why not be there? Um, but I would say maybe this is a controversial point. I reckon within maybe four to five months, we're going to start to see the beginnings of a rally because I think the, the central banks are going to be forced back in. This looks so bad, it'll break and they're going to have to come back. And actually, Jerome Powell gave a hint of that. Uh, in the Cato Institute uh, uh, conference about 10 days ago. He said that they would bring back QE quickly if it was needed. And I think that's an interesting hint. And look at what the ECB did uh, last week when they hiked rates 75 bips. They actually snuck in uh, a way of keeping their balance sheet bloated. So the central banks are beginning to turn. Now, to give you a perspective of why this is important, uh, when I was at Salomon Brothers with Henry Kaufman, who was, for those of you that don't know Henry, he dominated the markets in the 1980s. Henry always used to say, and Henry pretty much invented Fed watching. Henry used to say that the central banks, i.e. the Fed, 
never really understood the markets. It was always a pace behind because the markets were innovating. And that's the problem you've got today. There are two basic features which, are, which we need to think about. One is when I started in this business, the real economy drove the financial markets. Now the financial markets drive the real economy. So if the financial markets break, it's bad news for the real economy. That's point number one. Point number two is that the nature of the financial markets has changed. They're no longer new financing mechanisms. They're refinancing mechanisms for debt. And if you're refinancing debt, you basically need balance sheet capacity, i.e. liquidity. And that's why all these crises in the last 20 years have basically been repo or refinancing crises. Uh, it's all because the liquidity is not there to roll the debt over. Something like seven times as much activity is done in debt rollover than in new financing. And that's why it's so critical. The central banks don't tweak this. And that's why they've been focused wrongly on interest rates. They've got to look at liquidity. And what they should be doing is hiking rates to a high level and keeping them there, but basically accommodating liquidity. Uh, and that's what they've got to do. As the system is breaking, which it's doing now, they're going to have to come back in with a lot more liquidity. Now, if you look at what the Federal Reserve has been doing or the US policy this year, in my reckoning, it's been very simple that the Federal Reserve wants to get the balance sheet down and it wants to get the dollar up. OK, that's the policy this year. I've spoken before on George's spaces about what I think is going on in the Forex markets. But I'd say this, that the dollar really started to move about a week after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I don't think that was a coincidence. I think it was deliberate. Uh, but we can come on to that. What you're getting is you will get rather next year is the reversal of that. We'll get the balance sheet up and the dollar down. Uh, and that's why I think there's an opportunity. But it's ugly in the <laughs> near term. Now, one last thing about what's going on is that we can't, you know, we can't forget about China. What you've had this year is a deliberate attack, I think, on the level of the yuan currency. And the Chinese, since 2016, and something called the Shanghai Accord, have been trying to manage their currency and stabilize it to keep it kind of rock solid as a linchpin, uh, you know, for the Asian economies. And that has been derailed now, deliberately, I think. But the yen, the yuan, rather, has now shot through seven, testing 7.2. Uh, what the Chinese have been forced to do through this year is to massively tighten monetary policy. It's not the COVID crisis, the only problem on China. It's the fact that the PBOC has been very, very tight. They may and they may have to ease quite a lot in the next 12 months, particularly when uh, Xi Jinping is basically reappointed supreme leader in about four weeks time. That may be the catalyst. So you could have the PBOC and the Federal Reserve easing into 2023. And that could be a significant factor. Now, in the near term, what's the problem? And I said this two or three days ago in one of George's other spaces. The problem is the fixed income markets. The fixed income markets have got a wonkish concept in there called a term premia, which is a little bit like the risk premia on equities, but this is for fixed income. It's how you value them, really. What you're looking at in the US Treasury market is the lowest ever term premia on the US 10-year bond. It's big negative. It's about up minus 150 basis points on our reckoning. Uh, even the New York Fed and their unofficial estimates put it at about minus 100 or there or thereabouts. So we're very close on that. An all-time low in the risk premium uh, on the biggest capital market in the world, the biggest, you know, the most important market in the world, the U.S. Treasury market, should be getting the Federal Reserve and the central banks waking up and saying, hey, something disastrous is happening here. 
It either means, number one, that you've got a big recession coming. It means, number two, that there's a shortage of collateral in the system, which it probably is. Or number three, and number three, there's a big liquidity squeeze going on. All three are probably coming together. And that's why, you know, the proverbial whatever is hitting the fan big time in the next few weeks. And the last point I'll make is just to emphasize what Mr. Blonde was saying. If you look at what the term premium is saying in the U.S. markets, it's telling you the bond market is telling you that earnings are going to be down 20 percent next year on the S&P. You read the FT this morning. What do they say? I mean, they, these guys are yeah, out of space, really. They're saying that the U.S. bond market is discounting a soft landing in the U.S. economy. That's absolute rubbish. The bond market is discounting a hard landing in the U.S. economy. Uh, and that's what the term premium is saying. So let me stop there and see what uh, I'll hand it back to George. That's fantastic, Michael. Um, please stay with us because we're, we are going to want to come on to the uh, come on to the UK in a bit. Um, Mr. Blonde, you were talking about, you know, uh, look at multiple compression on uh, you were penciling in some uh, nominal earnings declines. But we have uh, our good friend Michael Belkin here, who has been very outspoken about uh, the horrendous outlook for uh, earnings. And Michael's already pointed out, I believe, that already in the second quarter, uh, earnings were down, if you look uh, carefully at the data. And Michael Belkin, um, welcome. Um, always great to, to, to hear from you. Maybe uh, you might want to chime in a little bit, sort of on the cyclical perspective, and in particular, maybe start with earnings, because you've made a, made a great point uh, in recent weeks about how earnings already were falling in the second quarter. And therefore, I know you're out there with this, I think, $110 earnings estimate, which some people think are crazy. But if I'm not mistaken, you, as you rightly point out, earnings are already coming in at $180 annualized rate sitting right here right now. So, Michael, welcome. Uh, the floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Hi, George. Uh, thanks, everybody. Um, yeah. So let's talk about earnings. Um, here's my hypothesis. Um, right now, you know, the end of the quarter and end of September is in three days, Friday. Um, I think corporate accountants are likely preparing dismal revenue and earnings reports that will blindside investors. There's three reasons for that. Consensus earnings expectations are ridiculous. We already know that. Um, the economy slumped in this quarter. So the S&P market composite manufacturing and service PMI has been below the 50 level for three months. And a lot of other things, you know, that's not the only thing, but that's just, I think that's a really good um, indicator of where the economy is at. It's not collapsing yet, but it's not, it's the growth is slowing. And whatever growth there is, it's being eaten up by inflation. Um, and the third thing is the dollar. The dollar index is up 9% in the Q3. And that will depress uh, revenue and earnings, especially for the tech sector. Um, so this is not really reflected in what in the market right now. So um, the current consensus um, earnings expectations, if you read facts at or Bloomberg or something, it's 225 bucks for this year. That's fit. That's averaging $56 a quarter and it's $242 for next year. That's averaging 60, 25 per quarter. Okay. So here's what's happened though. Earnings S and P 500 earnings peaked in Q4 last year. FactSet doesn't acknowledge this. Bloomberg doesn't acknowledge this. Nobody acknowledges this. Go to Standard & Poor's, the index provider. 
they have, you can download a great spreadsheet there. You have to dig for it. But they have, um, you know, I've been following their numbers since my Solomon Brothers days. And uh, Bob Solomon, who's head of research department, got me into the, into their numbers. They're, they're really the gold standard for numbers. They have, oper this is operating earnings according to index provider standard and pours. And so they have a consensus expectation and then they have what really hit. So here's what really hit. Q4 last year number, that was a peak, 56.73. So almost 57 bucks. Then Q1 was 49.36. Q2, 46.87. So we're down like nine bucks already, right, in quarterly earnings. Um, now, they always have these expectations, like before this, so like Q2, 46.87, they were expecting 55 bucks you know, right before that um, quarter ended Q2. And it came in like down $8 below that, right? So they've got the same thing now, $55 expectation for Q3. And um, it's just completely off the wall. So let me put this in perspective. So I've been saying we're in a recession or going into a recession for quite a while on these, in my report, the Belkin report, and in these spaces. So that recognition is beginning to be reflected, right? Like, you know, you see that on Bloomberg, Reuters, CNBC, everybody, you know, uh, surveys of investors think we're either already in a recession or we're headed into one. Okay, so here's what happens to earnings in the last three recessions. Here's what happened. Um, peak quarterly earnings, okay, from peak to trough, last time, 2020, down 51%. 2009, that was the recession before that, down 56%. 2001, the last recession before that, so the last three recessions, down 39%. So down 51, down 56, down 39. That's what happens in recessions. Pick your number. So an average of that is like down 49%, okay? Just take an average of those last three recessions. So if you apply that 49, down 49%, just back of the envelope, you know, rule of thumb, to peak earnings in this cycle, 56.73, you end up with a number of 28.93, which is $115.73 annualized. 115, okay, say 116, 116. That's 52% below the current consensus 2023 estimate of 242. And th this is not conspiracy theory stuff. This is just normal recession stuff. So here's what I think. I think no one ever told Wall Street analysts that recessions exist, okay? They don't know it or that corporate earnings collapse in recessions. So these guys have Excel spreadsheets and they just keep copying out this, you know, they extrapolate whatever's happening now in a linear extrapolation. That's where these, these BS, total BS earnings uh, forecasts come from. And that's what the market is valuing stocks on. It's just totally out to lunch. So here's, I think the market is wrong, okay? Now, and it's dangerous to always say that, you know, the market is wrong. You're, I'm right, the market is wrong. That's, that sounds like lunatic fringe stuff. But here's where I think the market's wrong. Um, the market thinks the problem is inflation and the Fed hiking interest rates. Okay, yeah, but you, let's put that in perspective. Last year, they were saying um, 
we are not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Remember when Powell said that? What a lunatic. What, a, what an idiot, right? Like not now look at him. And he, they were also saying um, inflation is transitory. So those were the two key points from a year ago, Powell. Inflation is transitory, and we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Okay, so fast forward to today. Inflation is the huge problem. You have Fed speakers out there every five minutes. Somebody say, inflation is so bad, we got to get it back to 2%, uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, so the real problem for the market is the economy is going into a recession and earnings are going to collapse. So the psychology of the market is going to change. Here's what I think. That, that right now the psychology is completely fixated on inflation, rate hikes, and the bonds, selling bonds and shorting bonds and all this stuff. That's what the macro traders are doing. The guys who've done really well shorting bonds, congratulations. But um, the next problem, which the market does not yet perceive, it's not reflected in prices, is this absolute collapse in earnings. And right now we are headed into uh, earnings warning season, right now. So we saw FedEx, you know, and a couple others. Um, I think is going to be a deluge of earnings misses and that's what's going to drive the market down okay um so let's talk about some levels um i actually think short okay there's first of all short term i know you talked about short term for a second there george and nobody gets it right that's true but there's this weird two three day cycle i've, I've been watching it and you know so the market it goes down for two or three days and then goes up for, for two or three days it doesn't really affect where we end up you know intermediate or long term but it should affect your trading so you don't want to be selling and shorting into the hole and you don't want to be buying after rallies. So you want to take advantage of these like short-term moves that last a couple, three days. Um, and uh, so I was, I, I was expecting that we might get, try to, they would try to jam things up into the end of the quarter, right? That's the typical thing. Portfolio managers, you know, I mean, well, just to put it in perspective, the S&P is down 8% in September. It's down 3% in Q3, and it's down 23% year-to-date. So there's not a lot of compensation that anybody's going to get by jamming things up, but it's sort of a knee-jerk reaction. And, you know, that's what people do. You know, they just buy, they wait till the end of the quarter to jam things up. Um, but that kind of failed today. Like we had a chance to do that and it just kind of evaporated. So I think today was kind of a key day. I was expecting things to ramp into the end of the quarter and somebody really stomped on it and things, you know, the bonds sold off again. Things look really ugly short term. So I'm not so sure about the end of the quarter thing. Um, but let's longer term, let's talk about where we are. 200 week average. So I'm not, you know, I developed all these um, models. Um, I back-tested everything when I was at Solomon Brothers. I developed my own model, which is based on time series analysis. It's sort of a combination of Fourier, Box Jenkins, just the mathematics behind those things. But um, what I, so I'm not, you know, uh, you know, wave analysis. I don't do anything of that. And I couldn't make technical analysis work as a systematic trading strat strategy. However, trend analysis is very important. So I'd like to differentiate between technical analysis and trend analysis. I think all investors should, should pay attention to trend analysis, which is where is the market? Where are long-term trends? Um, is it in an uptrend or a downtrend? And uh, if you get to a trend, is it going to bounce? And if it breaks that long-term trend, is the next, you know, has a completely reversed trend. So that's the, the 
the backdrop to what I'm going to say here. So we're right on the 200-week moving average in the S&P 500. So we're at 36.48. The 200-week average is 35.90. So 1% or 2% above the 200-week average. NASDAQ, we're 200-week average is um, right, where, right where we are. So, for instance, on the Qs, we're at... Um, 275, 274 something, QQQs, triple Qs, NASDAQ, uh, ETF. The 200-week average is 273, so less than a percent. Um, so here's the point. 200-week um, average shows a reversal of a basically intermediate-term, but it could be longer-term trend. So, so far, the whole bear market down 23% in the S&P, down a lot more in the NASDAQ. It's just been sort of a correction to the intermediate-term trend, 200-week average. I, you know, right now, my models, so I have uh, direction, position, intensity, daily, weekly, monthly. So they're all pointing down right now. So we could get these little bounces. You know, you never know. They come out of left field. But... Um, it, to me, it's accelerating to the downside. You want to be selling and shorting into short-term rallies that last a couple of days. So what happens when you break the 200-week average? The next target becomes the 200-month average. So it can be tricky around the 200-week average. So we've kind of already had a bounce on the 200-week average in Europe. And here's what's happened. And in the U.S., the Russell 2000, the New York Composite Index, NYA, the DAX and the FTSE mid-cap, which are the two major benchmark indexes in Europe, they've all broken the 200-week average after bouncing on them. So it's already happened there in the broader market in the U.S., that's Russell and NYA, and in the major indexes in Europe. So you've already had the intermediate-term bounce, you know, a typical thing, trend analysis. You fall to the trend, bounce, then you go through it. That's already happened in Europe and in the broader market. And we're about to do it in the S&P and the NASDAQ. So, so what? So what happens next? 200-month average. <laughs> now, that one, doesn't ha you don't get there very often. That's really a long-term, long-cycle thing. You know, to get to the 200-month average takes a lot of, of doing. You know, like, so that's usually where things culminate. And that, it's not a magic number. It's not like brain surgery. It's not a, you know, precise. But it gives you a general idea where things could go to. So where's that number for the S&P? 2108. We're at 36.48. That's down 42%. And the NASDAQ, um, NASDAQ index, NDX, it's, uh, we're, uh, it's down 55%. 200-month average is 5.087. And I'm not saying we're going there tomorrow morning or this week or ne next week or this month. But that's where this is headed. Um, and I think it will be driven by a decline in earnings, by um, a bunch, a blizzard of earning earnings warnings from companies and then you get um goldman and morgan and piper jeffrey blah, blah, and they say oh we're downgrading the stock we didn't understand that intel's earnings we're gonna oh it's much worse than we expected you know so just expect you know dozens and dozens and dozens of those over the next month or two and so the companies guide down the uh, the sell side tells the sheeple the, the portfolio managers who only listen to sell-side analysts and, the, and they pay attention to this BS fact set forward earnings thing, which is, you know, twice as high as where it should be. And then, so you get this herd instinct where, um, where selling hits. So uh, what do you do? That's pretty much all my points. Here's what I, 
I think um, the VIX, VIX option up volatility index is headed much higher. Options are, I hate options most of the time um, because they're just a wasting asset, right? You know, the time premium, if you, don't, if you pick your price or the maturity wrong, just goes to zero. You know, usually it's a loser's, total loser's game. However, in this, op, in this position, um, and I know we just had the biggest put option buying of institutions last week. You know, there's a lot of headlines about that. I actually think put options make sense. Um, not, you know, ridiculous down 20, 30%, but down a little bit below the market out three to six months. So I won't tell you a level or um, a number, but, you know, I like shorting the NASDAQ. So uh, put options, December, January, March out there a, a little bit, you know, five, 10% below the market, not with all your capital, right? You take this is asymmetric bet. So you take a small percentage, you, you know, um, a small percentage of your NAV, whatever it is, to protect your portfolio or, you know, to, to play in a bear market. And you get a potential payoff of doubling or tripling or something or more if, uh, if, if this thing really feeds to the downside. That's pretty much it. So just to summarize, the earnings, it's not, this is not conspiracy theory stuff. You know, earnings go, they decline by 50% in recessions. If you think we're in a recession, the earnings expectation for next year of $242 for the S&P is just so ridiculous. It's not even, it's just insane. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Like it's going to be more like my number is 110, 111, but even like a 49% average of the last two recessions, you come in with 118. You put a 22, so the average uh, historical PE for the last 10 years of the S&P is 22 based on historical earnings. If you do that, um, you get a number index level of 25.71, which is down 30%. So pick your number, but I mean, the, the next... 12 to 18 months, the market could basically go down by 30 to 60%, depending upon what valuation metric or trend uh, analysis number that you, um, that you have. So don't be caught long. Don't be caught napping. And um, I have been wrong on bonds. Uh, I, I'm hanging on by a thread. I think um, the bonds are oversold. And I think when the market crashes, there will be this asset allocation shift out of bonds, out of stocks into bonds. Sure hasn't happened yet. I've been dead wrong on it so far. But um, so I'm still hanging in with TLT. It's a long shot. It hasn't worked. Sorry about that. But um, the market is going down. I've come on these spaces numerous times saying, you know, that the downside of the market is much more than people expect. And I just like to repeat that here. Look out below. Right. Thank you for that, Michael. Um, so let's go back. Um, real tour de force, Michael. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, Michael Howell. I'd like to go to what triggered Michael Belkin. And the, the initial question was earnings. And Mr. Blonde, um, let's go back to earnings. Um, you know, uh, Michael Belkin was making some points about um, uh, the outlook for real collapse in earnings. And first, Mr. Blonde, and then, and then Michael Howe. Um, you know, when you think about how this, how this cycle is progressing, and again, we always try to figure out, you know, what's not discounted. What are your thoughts, Mr. Blonde, about the potential that earnings could really undercut consensus expectations? So I, I fully agree. It's been a view um, all year. I think, um, I think what I'm not sure about uh, is the precise timing of that. I, I do agree that 
um, as each month and as each quarter passes, the timing, um, you know, becomes, you know, it's, it's closer to being on the doorstep. Uh, and I do think that um, the release from FedEx uh, is important. Uh, by the way, it wasn't just FedEx, um, you know, Eastman Chemical, Huntsman, Dow Chemical, you kind of all said something similar, which is, you know, things changed in the last few weeks enough for them to, um, you know, uh, to, to, to change their guidance, despite, you know, corporates, you know, historically and generally having the ability to beat, you know, street numbers. So, uh, if they have to say something, then, you know, it's serious, right. Um, Ford said something similar, you know, GE said something similar. I know people are going to say, Oh, but they said it was just supply chain stuff. I mean, listen, the supply chain thing has been a, a, a quote unquote problem for 18 months. So how's it, I mean, it's just hard for me to imagine that that's still an issue. I mean, or it just speaks to corporate management, which would would be another point. Um, I, you know, several people have said that FedEx, this is a function of poor corporate management and all the rest. That might be true, but I would say that in in weak earning cycles, that's exactly what you would expect to happen. Negative convexity comes from poor corporate management uh, and companies that were not prepared. Either they misguided and or they mismanaged the business in such a way that you have a thirty percent miss. Uh, on street forecast. So it does seem like, you know, we're, we're taking steps in the direction where um, we're going to get, you know, that kind of negative surprise. I think, um, George, you mentioned it earlier, which is, you know, the probability of negative surprise. I, the, you know, my sort of simple framework for, for markets is, you know, it tends to be, you know, um, similar to sort of a PMI framework. It's not that complicated. And I don't know why most economists, you know, are so dismissive of it. But when PMI is rising, it simply tells you that the probability of positive surprise is higher. When PMIs are falling, it tells you that the, pos- the, the probability of negative surprise is higher. And that, that's exactly what plays out when you look at um, earnings surprise you know, versus PMIs over the last 30 years. <laughs> this is not, you know, it's not rocket science and you know, to the point that was made about consensus numbers. It's true. In, in aggregate, I mean, of course, there are good um, analysts on the street. I mean, they get, you know, they're, they're paid well for what they do and they wouldn't get paid well if they weren't good at what they did. But in aggregate, um, they're, they're, they're generally slow to move. Uh, and you know, the, the, the changes don't typically happen until after, uh, corporates, um, spill their guts and tell you. And so this is where I think, you know, four times a year, we're likely to kind of get a wave of this news, um, and similar to what happened in 2Q, uh, not not speaking directly to the specific EPS level. This is a tricky, you know, conversation. A lot of different data providers have different measures of earnings operating on gap and, and whatnot. But to me, when I look at earnings season, you look for a couple things. One is what were the what was the trajectory of estimates and numbers coming into the quarter, meaning are companies quote unquote beating a flat or firm number, or are they beating a number that's been cut pretty materially coming in? Uh, Two, you're looking for what are the revisions coming out of that quarter, meaning in the subsequent quarter or in the subsequent year, are analysts at least keeping their numbers the same um, or are they cutting their numbers? Uh, And then the the third thing I look at is like, what is the, you know, kind of market price um, reaction, um, which is, you know, kind of a catch all for, you know, what was the body language of corporates? What were the guidance? You know, what was the quality of the quarter and whatnot? I mean, on most of those measures, second quarter was was pretty quick. It was pretty crappy. Numbers had come down a lot coming into the quarter. Uh, and if you look at third quarter numbers and 2023 numbers, they came they they were cut even further after second quarter report. You know, stock prices went up. 
um, in aggregate. But when you look beneath the surface, companies that missed were punished um, by a greater degree on average than they had been uh, in the past. I mean, so all of that to me suggests that, you know, where the cycle has has aged and has, has changed. And it's you know definitely more of a uh, will be more of a focus in the coming quarters. Again, I, I don't know. You know the the precise timing of it is is always a is a, is always a, a challenge. Um, there's no reason not to think that third quarter won't be worse than the second quarter, given what we've seen in uh, PMIs. You know, from second quarter to the third quarter, given what we've seen um, in financial conditions um, over the course of the last six months. I mean, I think all the signs are are all they're all there. That's terrific, Mr. Blond. Uh, by the way, I can't remember who coined the phrase in this room in recent weeks. In the aftermath of the FedEx disaster, um, <laughs> Michael Belka, this is some type of thing, wise guy comment I expect from you, but uh, they were talking about some other company blowing up on earnings, and they said, oh, you mean they got FedExed? So that's, I think, the new term that's used, the new vernacular for when a company has a big earnings blow up. So, Michael Howe, um, I know you've got your models and your observations about um, earnings, some predictive uh, power, maybe along the lines of what Mr. Barn was talking about, looking at PMIs and exchange rates and what and, and whatnot. So, two questions for you. Uh, one, your take on the likelihood of where earnings prices are, whether it be coming better than expected, worse than expected. And then once we're through that, since uh, you're from, you're on this little island uh, out in the ocean there, and I've been reading something's going on with your exchange rate. I don't know. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what's going on in the UK. And then and then after that, maybe Mr. Blonde, you could respond by, um, you know, to what extent maybe is what we're seeing in the UK. Is it an anomaly or is it possibly instructive? Does it have information content for what we might be looking at in terms of coming attractions globally where you have the uh, conflict of, uh, you know, uh, fiscal versus monetary policy? So, Michael, how over to you. Okay, George. Yeah. Um, in terms of the earnings numbers, I, I said earlier on that if you look at what the, the term premium and bond market are telling you, uh, the, the fact that term premium are so low and so negative, uh, which is a clear anomaly, is basically saying that at least earnings will fall by minimum 20% next year. I think it'll be worse. And I kind of concur with what Mike Belkin was saying, that, you know, you look at the compression uh, that's coming through on margins. I mean, it could be a lot worse than that. I mean, maybe his 50% is is actually spot on. So it'll be a really ugly number. Uh, this this period in the in the bear market, the second leg down, as we call it, is normally when you see another at least another 20% fall. So we we've only just started that. So there could be quite a lot of uh, distress going on. So you know, I'm absolutely in this camp. The only difference I've got is what I'm trying to say is. Look, the, 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 this is so bad, the central banks are going to have to come back in. Uh, and that may be, you know, three to six months away, uh, maybe as soon as that. On the question of the UK, um, I think it's pretty clear. Look, uh, the, the reason that sterling has been weak is really because the dollar's strong. Uh, sterling wasn't the weakest currency of the majors last week. Actually, the Swedish krona had that prize. Um, sterling was weak, sure, but I mean, it wasn't radically out of line with a lot of others. Uh, one of the reasons that sterling has been weak uh, is because the Bank of England has done such a pathetic job, uh, whereas all other central banks were raising rates by 75 to 100 basis points. The Bank of England came in with 50 basis points. Hello. Uh, and we've got a bigger inflation problem in the near term. So this is a lot of it is because monetary policy needs to sharpen up. The other thing that I would kind of remind a lot of the media commentators who are 
trying to slam the UK and the budget and whatever, is that this mix of uh, loose fiscal policy, tight monetary policy or tighter monetary policy is the one that actually launched the dollar into a bull market uh, in the early in the early 1980s. Um, you know, uh, it worked then. Uh, this is the right sort of mix for actually for, for sterling stabilizing. So I think that a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, screams about how bad this is, is this basically the media talking and getting it completely wrong. The, U- the UK bond market has sold offshore, but then there's a lot of other bond markets that have sold off. Look at Italy. I mean, even look at the US Treasury market we're talking about. So let's get this into context. This is a global phenomenon. Global liquidity is crashing. Okay, people want to jump onto the UK, but it's not really a special case at all, as far as I can see. And what they're doing is actually trying to create a counter-cyclical monetary policy. Sorry, sorry, a counter-cyclical fiscal policy at a time when we know there's a recession coming. And that strikes me as, as, as pretty, uh, pretty sensible in the long term. So anyway, let, let me stop there, hand it back to George. So, um, Mr. Blonde, uh, listening to Michael uh, Howe and thinking about Rick Santelli at the, at the top, the central banks uh, being, um, you know, having been the big enablers uh, for the last so many years, and maybe their ability to be the enablers has uh, been sufficiently uh, handicapped. Uh, what does that? How does that speak to you in terms of the the, the manifestations, the pressures of that that we're likely to see coming out of that going forward? I mean, are we like? Is is there information content in what we're seeing in the UK, or is that just a one-off? Yeah, listen. I mean, I, well, I kind of have a I have a question for uh, Michael Howell on on his view, and he obviously you probably has spent more time studying this, but I, I'll I'll comment at the same time, and then I'll sort of let him answer the question. I mean, I think I guess my take is, you know, the mess the the market is speaking to us. I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether what the UK's you know plan was, you know, um, is comparable to what happened in the early '80s in the U.S. I mean, I think there's some there's some important differences, uh, level of yields, you know, debt profile. But most importantly, you know, maybe what the market likes and what the market's focused on, you know, or what the market wants, and what the market's focused on today. Um, and I think that that's that's the part that you know maybe deserves you know more respect. Now, maybe maybe the market will be wrong about that ten years from now, um, you know. But you know, it's certainly um, sending a pretty clear message. I mean, thirty year. Gilts are up 150 basis points in five days, or something along those lines. I, I mean, that's that's it's it's pretty clear that the market is not on board with that policy path. Um, and so, I would say that the if any if any other country thought that that was you know and you know the way that they were going to go, i.e., easy fiscal and tight monetary. I, I would think that they're all sharpening their pencils right now and thinking that that's probably not going to be the best path to take. Um, so that, that's my take on it outside looking in. Um, you know, maybe my sort of direct question to, to Michael Helm would be, you know, are there not, are the conditions today not different than, than they were in the early 1980s in that, you know, whatever you had a 15 year bear market in bonds already, you know, level of interest rates was substantially higher than versus, you know, what it is today. You didn't have all this other QE and other nonsense uh, in the mix. And, and you were also maybe not at, uh, you, you weren't at a point in the cycle where um, that policy was, you know, um, is what it is today versus what it was then. I mean, I, I guess that sort of is where I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm taking you know, the, the market reaction to it. Um, as a clear signal that it's different 
maybe than you know its sort of fundamental underpinnings. To, let, let, let me comment. I mean, I, I think you know. Let, let's uh, let's be clear. I mean, there, are, there there's truth in what you say. That's for sure. And I'm not uh, you know I'm not saying that the uh, the 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 UK government did a brilliant job in terms of selling its program. But I think that it is a bellwether in terms of what other governments are going to have to do. And if you get recessions coming through, which I think is everyone has agreed is pretty clear, we're going to have to move to some sort of countercyclical fiscal policy to at least take the pain out of what the central banks are doing and probably would do more of. So I think that that's coming. I think the question that we've got to, we've got to start thinking about medium term, and this is a more philosophical question, which uh, you know I don't know the answer to, but it is, comes in the category of kicking the can down the road, is that ultimately, um, you know, somehow the fiscal arithmetic has to add up for every country. Now, if you've got a reserve currency, you can do that rather more easily than if you haven't. OK, so there's a big message here for certain emerging economies. But ultimately, uh, what you have are declining tax bases in the West because of aging demographics and falling working populations. You've got a situation where tax, the tax base has been squeezed, uh, you know, dry because tax rates are pretty high already. Uh, and there's, there's no that you can't win votes by saying you're going to raise taxes. Um, you know, we can see that pretty much everywhere where there are uh, where there are elections upcoming. People are talking about tax cuts that may be sort of pie in the sky. But that's that's what people that's what the voters want to hear. The problem is, is that if you look at entitlement spending in almost every economy, and I think I'm right in quoting this figure about the states, is that 20 years ago, entitlement spending like Social Security, uh, whatever, uh, it was 30 percent uh, of the fiscal budget of the of expenditure. It's now 70 percent. OK, if you're going to add in military spending on top of that, um, you know, the expenditure outlays are going to be huge. The tax base is not there. It's probably more there in the U.S. than anywhere else. But there's a big gap to fill. So how are you going to start to fill that gap? And the only way that you can do that is to get the central banks to print more money. They, they've got to start buying this debt. So QE is going to come back. I mean, that's for sure at some stage, whether it's structural or whether it's cyclical. I think it's coming back for both reasons because it's a crisis. But I think the central bank is going to have to be here in the medium term. There's simply no other way that the arithmetic adds up. And therefore, I think the UK is kind of a bellwether uh, or maybe a, a, you know, a leading indicator of this, of the direction things are going in. And therefore, you know, the corollary is we're going to get a lot more volatility in the uh, in the Forex markets. And we get a lot more volatility in the fixed income markets. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, I remember in my Salomon days is we used to track the uh, the movement of volatility. Mike Belkin may remember this, but looking at how sequential volatility is, it normally begins in the fixed income markets, migrates to the Forex markets and then ends up with a bang in the equity markets. And that's what I think we're basically pointing to right now. Thanks for that, uh, Michael. That's brilliant. Uh, let's keep it going here. Um, and please, uh, Michael Hall and Michael Belkin, please, please stay up on stage because we've got some really good, sharp questions coming up. I'm now going to turn to our good friend, Mark Newman. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Uh, hey, how's it going, everyone? Um, I just want to reflect um, a lot of amazing guys up here have already spoken. And I want to just share something I learned very early, which was uh, people and prices. One of them tells the truth. And it's usually prices. Now, that is really means those who are closer to the big banks. And we can hear Belkin and um, I think it was Michael Howe. We're at Solomon and I was at Merrill a long time ago. And Michael Belkin hit on everyone being off sides on <clears throat> the earnings outlook. 
And I think what happens is people in this space clearly are here to tell the truth and tell exactly what they think is going on. And they don't have to really answer to anyone because Belkin and I think Michael Howe uh, and, and um, Mr. Blonde are obviously independent now and they can sort of do and say, and I'm independent too. So we can just sort of say what the critical thoughts are in our mind. And I think it's very important for the 1400 some odd folks in the room. I know there's many handful of a lot of very people with great experience, but those who have been around a little less, let's just say, you're hearing a lot of straight, direct truth in this room. And I think it's super important when you're making your decisions on risk, because I just want to touch on a couple things I heard here. I was taking notes. So the dollar and earnings, just think about what the DXY has done and then think around the yen, how it's moved, the, uh, <clears throat> the euro, how it's moved, the um, <clears throat> excuse me, the pound. Now that moved just recently, so a little less. But think of how that translates for earnings for Microsoft or whomever has big overseas revenues coming back. So that is why I think Blonde and Belkin hit on that. That's why earnings will suffer. And then um, Mr. Blonde, I believe, pointed out something in the markets in terms of price and price action where he said the utilities seem to be moving pretty negatively. Places where we hit out maybe in the first six months, now it's harder to hide. And so when we talk about like Tina, there is no alternative. I think uh, it was blonde as well. Said, look at the short end. You got 4%. Like I'm looking at Fed funds of June at 4%. There is an alternative and it's cash on the sidelines at 4%. So for everyone to say, oh, there's cash on the sidelines and it's coming back so fast. Well, I don't know if it comes back that fast earning 4% for six, nine, 12 months in Fed funds June. That's what, nine months away. Now, the other thing, again, Mr. Belkin touched on the New York uh, NYSE, a broad base of an index, much broader than the Spoo's and the Q's and the Russell. They had already broke the 200-week moving average. On Friday, I put on my Twitter feed that we were talking about whether these names had held the lows, spiders or Q's or IWM. Well, the NYA blew through its June low on Friday and went lower again today. And today, the spiders, the S&P made a new low. The Q's and IWM have not done it yet. So there's a lot of interesting things going on. And I think one of the critical ones, again, I think it was Mr. Blonder or, or Michael Howe, I'm not sure, talking about how the forecast now for the next quarter into, into Q1 is for a recession. You're not hearing that from the folks at the banks. You're not hearing that really from the folks on TV. We heard it from Jim Bianco the other night here because, again, he's a truth teller. And I think everyone needs to really trust the messenger in this case because, again, People and prices, one of them tells the truth. And the prices are telling us, and thankfully, the people in this room, very experienced people, um, are telling the truth. And I think you all need to just consider that as you manage your risk into the final quarter here and then into spring. It's really important. And I just want to thank everyone. And again, I want to thank George for being the Aaron Judge of Spaces, hitting a home run like every time I come here. So I'm hey, just Mark. adding a little collection there. That's it. Hey, Mark, you're too kind. And by the way, it's not me. It's 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 all of you that make these spaces so special. I'm just blown away, Mark. I'm Mark. I'm muting you. You got you. You're doing something there. I'm just blown away by. I mean, just look at the just look around you. Look at the collection of talent on this stage. It's just. I'm just the the, the bouncer. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we now have Mr. Ian Harner has entered the fray. But Ian. Um, I'm going to call on you secondly. First, we're going to go Mr. Charlie Munger fans has been waiting. And then after Charlie Munger fans, we're going to go to Ian Harnett. And after Ian Harnett, we are going to 
um, hammer cap. So, Ian, welcome. Uh, Charlie Munger, welcome. What's up, my friend? Hey, George. Just uh, love your spaces. Um, I think this was probably four months ago you called the profit pool shrinking, so it's helped a lot of people save money. Um, we've obviously had a lot of discord. Just My boss has been doing it for 50 years, and he said, in an environment where you know there's not symmetrically cheap stocks people will have recency bias going back to their favorites and not look where other people are looking i'm interested just a question to the panel you know what are areas that are unloved because like lee lou says you want to be first in the room when no one's there and then sell when people are clearly overcrowded so I'd just be interested in people's thoughts on if you're managing large sums of money which george you've done in the past where do you go today well, that, 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 Charlie, that's a, um, that, that, that's a deceptively, uh, it's a seemingly simple question, but it's a, it's a deceptively complicated one. Um, mm. we, wit- we, we witnessed the everything, uh, we went through the everything uh, bull market where the price of everything from, you know, equities to bonds to commodities to collectibles to baseball cards to cryptocurrencies, go down the list, it all got pumped up. And now the year's coming out of the tires and we're in the everything bear market. So, it's really been a question of how do I lose money most slowly? I want to see, we need to see dislocation. Charlie, if you wouldn't mind muting yourself, please. We, we, we need to see dislocation. We haven't had a real credit cycle yet. We need to see dislocation. We need to see revulsion. We need to see forced selling. We haven't seen it yet. And that's why I think the advice given by Mr. Blonde and echoed really by Michael Howe and Michael Belkin, holding cash, having the firepower, to be able to buy the rubbish when there's blood in the streets, that's how you need to be positioning yourself. You know, when people say, oh, cash on the sidelines. That's one of the most hackneyed BS stockbroker economics, Andrew Smithers, please call your office, phrases out there. Cash on the sidelines, all right? Yeah, I mean, Mark Newman, how many trillions of dollars of cash on the sidelines have been in Japan for the last, you know, three decades? So cash on the sidelines is complete bullshit, all right? Um, and... You know, as was pointed out by um, uh, the speakers we've had here, um, you know, I'd like to think that they'll be giving you a, a discount or giving you a real deal. I mean, as I think Mr. Baum was pointed out, even on these elevated earnings estimates, market PE and PEs are misleading. We're only back to like the 15-year average. This is nothing. And this is before earnings collapse. And you would think on the downside there should be symmetry and maybe we go to, you know, really substandard PE. So, I am not in the mood. I've not been in the mood to buy anything. I think it's way too early. Um, if Michael Hal is correct and Mr. Bond is correct, let's just focus on Hal because I think he's been most vocal about eventually going to pivot. I think you know Michael Belkin has talked on occasions about gold stocks. Eventually, I mean they're they're held in tremendous disrepute, um, and I hate to say it, maybe Bitcoin actually goes back up. But when they put their foot in the accelerator. You'd want to own the most liquidity-sensitive uh, assets. And, you know, I can't imagine sentiment on gold being – I mean, by the way, I am just want to be very clear here before anyone throws tomatoes at me in, in, in Twitter. I'm not advocating buy gold stocks. I've, I've not owned gold stocks. I don't own gold stocks. But I could see a scenario where when everything that's not being – that's not nailed down is being sold and when the Fed puts their foot in the accelerator because we do have a car crash – as is being, you know, forecasted sometime next year by Mr. Howe, that, you know, gold stocks will take, will take light. But right now, you know, and by the way, your question is a good question, but one of, and I'm not, I'm not putting tomato, throwing tomatoes at you because, I mean, you and I have conversed before and I know where your head's at. But 
when I see all the retail crowd, the Twitter spaces and on TV, what am I supposed to buy? What am I supposed to buy? As long as they're still asking that question, to me, that's telling me that the market's still going down. Um, I want to see, you know, that over a trillion dollars of retail accumulation uh, that occurred last year, some of that being puked. It's unbelievable. There's been virtually no selling this year from the retail community. So I just think it's the wrong, it, it's just not the right time for that question. That's my own two cents. And I'm going to take the liberty of uh, skipping the other panelists because I'm guessing that their a- answer is not going to be too different from mine based on what they said. And instead, I'm going to turn to Ian Harnett, uh, who has always got um, some interesting observations. Ian, uh, good to see you. You could either, I'm going to give you three assignments. You can talk about whatever you want, basically. I love hearing you, hearing you speak. But, 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 but start with, I guess, one, is there anything to buy? Two, um, you know, speak on the UK specifically. And just three, the sort of general take they're hearing from the panel. So, Ian, good to hear you. George, thanks very much indeed. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening. As everyone said, it's a great space and a big fan of uh, all your key speakers, Mr. Blonde, Michael, you know, and uh, Michael. So thank you very much indeed for that. So we have gone out with a max defensive weighting for our institutional clients and a max overweight cash. So we deliberately did not go back into max overweight bonds but we are overweight bonds george so you know i would echo your point entirely which is that this is not the time to be thinking about buying anything and as mr blonde said it's about conserving cash and the chart we've been sharing with clients is to you know the one that looks at price to book multiples compared to their peaks and troughs over the last 10 years you can add that out add, push that out to 20 years and it looks the same nearly every global sector is still above their 10-year average price-to-book level. And this is the most defensive valuation. You know, very few sectors, you know, only things like telcos and media stocks are below, and just about banks are just touching below. You know, they're only just below their 10-year averages. So there is a lot of downside here. And, you know, people should be looking at their portfolios, looking at the lowest valuations on the most defensive, um, uh, you know, um, measures that they like to use, because that's what they should be comparing these lows at. And when, um, you know, Mark was talking about, you know, people aren't talking about recession. One of the things I spotted recently is that the New York Fed's recession probability model is now 25% for six months time. That's a big rise, you know, so the New York Fed is starting to get ready for recession here. But the reason why I wanted to, to, to you know, to talk, um, George, was, you know, in part about the UK. You know, the UK is still a complete uh, mess. We've been underweight UK assets for the best part of a year. Equities, bonds and cash, you know, it is not getting better. We're seeing an equilibration process taking place here. The risks on the downside, if you look at some of the Fibonacci numbers, they go down to the, to the 90s uh, on, uh, on sterling dollar, you know, so well below parity. Um, and the risk here is that, you know, UK equities continue to lose value. Um, there's money illusion in the UK. You know, the FTSE relative to 2016, it's, you know, before the Brexit, you know, the UK FTSE, because of its high overseas weighting, is up 12%. In dollar terms, relative to the rest of the world, you've lost 40%. 
So, you know, this is what real money illusion looks like when you take all the stress through the exchange rate. And remember that every crisis in the past for the UK, we always take it through the exchange rate. Um, and I agree with the other speakers that, you know, and particularly Michael, you know, policy will be forced to change here. So I think my last point is that, you know, one of the reasons why we're max underweight equities is that we have a central forecast of minus 20% for global earnings growth. And we have done, you know, for, for a while now. And it's minus 30% for the eurozone. But this means that valuations really are still very unattractive for equities. Um, the chart that I flagged and the comment I made uh, on the uh, in the, the, the chat box was just to say, with a Schiller P at 28.9 times, your prospective 10-year returns are about 3%. Now, that means that, you know, two things. First of all, your 4% on bonds actually look really good because, you know, there is less volatility than you get in equities. The second point is that Jeremy Siegel, when he was talking about buy and hold for the long run, he was making those comments when multiples were down at 10, 15 times. So that, that was true in 1950, early 1960s. It was true in 1980. To a degree, it was even true at the bottom of the, uh, of the GFC. But, you know, your prospective returns at those points for buy and hold was 15%. Today, it's three. So, you know, the key point here is that buy and hold and, and buying the dips is not your friend at all, George, until we get down to more realistic valuations. And, you know, as Mr. Blonde said, our valuation, relative valuation models, looking at equities versus bonds, and we tend to detrend those relative valuations. This is a once in a decade opportunity to buy bonds relative to equities. So we would still stick well clear of equities. Equities can fall at least another 20% and you are only just about at fair value relative to bonds. And, you know, bonds probably in the next 12 months to echo Michael uh, uh, Howe's comment, I think in the next 12 months, bond yields could fall perhaps 100 to 150 basis points. And it's only when you've seen that combination will equities look cheap again relative to bonds. Wow, Ian, that's... Uh... Just for, just for those of you that don't, that don't know Ian, um, you know, he's a relative newcomer to uh, uh, Twitter. Um, I remember Ian it was great. We got to get you back. Uh, have you uh, as a speaker? Well, but I remember Ian. Ian, when I when I when I tried to uh, corral you into doing a space back in the spring, you're like, "What's this Twitter thing?" And I remember it was hysterical. You had a Twitter account. And we got you. I think we got you. You're like your first 500 follows just from that first room. And absolutely, I see, George. I, I see you're pressing on seven thousand. And Ian. You're performing such a public service by speaking out, um, you know, a, a, as are the other ones here, because there's there's a desperate need for truth on the street. And I think what kind of makes these spaces work, it's the content. It's not me. I just quote sort of the band leader. And people, you know, they hear truth and, and they're dying for it. And, and that's why these rooms continue to go from strength to strength. But I want everyone to know about Ian. I've known Ian, oh, my God, I don't know, 25 years or thereabouts. Um, I've known your partner, Mr. Bowers, going on 35 years. Ian, unlike yours truly, is, um, how shall I say, a well-adjusted person who's not th prone to bomb throwing. And I've not heard Ian speak in such forceful, negative terms. I can't remember if I've ever heard him speak like this. So what I'd say to everyone in the room that doesn't know Ian, it's one thing if you hear, you know, 
me going off on one of my rants or, uh, you know, I'll say this affectionately, Michael Belkin was not afraid to, you know, call him like he sees him. But for a mild-mannered, well-adjusted, you know, normal, bright <laughs> investment mind like Ian Harnett to speak like he does. I mean, for me, Ian, there's real information content. And one of the questions, I'm going to ask you, Ian, this question. I'm going to ask Mr. Blonde, Mr. Howell, and Mr. Belkin. I'm going to ask each of you this question in turn. Give me a quick answer. So, Ian, regardless of your view, um, what I often find is instructive is to ask, and I've asked you this question before. I've asked each of you this question before. It's an annoying question your confidence level associated with the view. So in other words, you know, you're running in a, in a, in a consultancy and you're advising clients what to do and you always have to have an opinion, but sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, on a scale of uh, one to 10, it's a 10 and other times it's a three. And sometimes you throw your hands up. You just don't know. And you got to be the shell answer, man. And, and so what I guess what I ask you, Ian Harnett, um, what's your, like, like the conviction you have right now? Cause you know how your indicators work. You know how cycles evolve. What's the conviction level you have around your opinion right now, Ian? How would you characterize that? High conviction? So I'd, I'd characterize it as very high, George. I'd characterize it as high as I had in 2007 as I was walking down Madison Avenue and thinking, these people have got no idea what's going to hit them. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's where we are. And Michael Howell's right. You know, the Fed will cut rates when things start to break, and they are starting to break. So very high conviction. Stay out of these markets for risk assets. So same question for you, Michael Howell, and you, Michael Belkin. Conviction level, Michael Howell? Um, conviction level, the market goes down another 10, uh, 20%, uh, very high. I mean, at, out of 10, 10. Um, and then a conviction that the Federal Reserve and others have to come back and get the balance sheet up and the dollar down um, six months out, uh, high conviction, 10 Fantastic. Mike, Mike Balkan? Yeah, I guess uh, I'd have to say 95% confidence interval, long-term, 12 to 18 months, the stock market goes down 50%. Wow. You know, you guys don't make it easy for me because one of the barbs that I get thrown at me, and I get these back-channel messages, oh, George, it's an echo chamber, can't you get some bullish people in here? And all I do is I call up the smartest guys I know, many of whom are on the stage right now, and I'm like, you know, you're not coming in here to tell me what I want to hear. I ask you to come in here and tell the truth. So I say to people, bring me a credible bull. Bring, I'm, I'm, I'm all for hearing the opposing points of view. As a matter of fact, I don't like being in an echo chamber. Oh, no. Here we go. Another smart guy, Eric Buzmaj, and he just showed up. All right, we're getting him up here. Let, 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 let's get this party started, Eric. Um, so in any event, um, um, and so I'm like, I'm like, bring me your bulls. Okay, not because I want to destroy them. I want to learn from them. And I just, you know, I, I don't need, I'm not going to mention names. People don't, well, some people like when I mention names, but I'm trying to clean up my act of my old age. You know, bring me a credible bull. And, and you know, I don't want women who are pushing tech stocks a hundred times earnings. I'm not going to mention names. Um, I don't want guys who run talk shows at 6 p.m. who, you know, have 2 million Twitter followers who change their opinion every week. I'm not going to mention names. You know what I'm talking about. And it's just so seriously, we're here to learn. We're not here to reinforce each other. This is not an echo chamber, because the reality of it is this this room is a distinct minority relative to the to the to, 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 to the street writ large. So Ian, <laughs> I was hoping you'd be bullish so at least we could have some diversity of opinion in this room, but it's not gonna happen. Um, all right, so let's keep moving here. 
I want to go to, uh, let's keep it going. We're going to go. Okay. So we got some really good cookies in here. My good friend Gilberto, followed by Carpathia, followed by uh, Eric Basmagian. So, Gilberto, welcome. Hi, everyone. I have a question for the panel, and it's, it's going like this. We are in the fourth quarter, or approaching the fourth quarter, and most of the governments need to send to Congress their respective budget. And outside the United States, it's no surprise most of the governments are deficiated. They don't produce enough money to supplement their own budget. So they go to the international market and they secure loans in dollars. So the question is as follows. As we approach to 2024, which is a high peak in presidential elections, at least in Latin America, uh, I have this idea and I want your opinions that we are close to a local peak in the dollar, push it because of government fighting for good rates to secure loans in the international market. And after we pass this December and most of the government have their budget secured, the pressure on the dollar is gonna ease a little bit, at least until the next budget session. And what do you guys think about the dynamics of supplementing uh, political elections with loans of dollars and if that alone can keep up the pressure in the dollar. That's one question. The other question is uh, to the macro strategists and macro guys who, who have uh, inside knowledge in emerging markets. Some of the emerging market countries, for example, the one I live in, which is Dominican Republic, front-loaded a lot of points in monetary policy. For example, November last year, we front-loaded like 500 points, and today we are eight points above what we were in November. My take is then, as soon as we approach elections in 23, 24, most of the government is going to press their respective central banks to ease at least in the in their means. And how do you think, guys, the emerging market bonds could be played out as a, for what I think is a over, most of the governments are trying to fight for dollars, so they are pressing, issuing really good bonds. And if you think that emerging market bonds of tourist uh, countries and countries with a lot of uh, demographics outside their country, which of course send dollars back to their family, are a good approach. Thank you. Thank you, Gilbert. So I guess the question is twofold, whoever wants to take it. One, what do you guys think about the dollar here as we get towards the, towards the end of the year? And two, um, thoughts on emerging market uh, bonds. So I don't know if, who on the panel, if anyone wants to take that one. Um, George, I'm happy to say something about the dollar. Please. Um, um, I think the dollar is, um, I think the, the point is well made that the dollar is getting near its peak. Um, I think that the rise in the dollar this year has been engineered. I've said that before. I think the policy um, earlier on this year, particularly when Ru uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, was deliberately to weaponize the dollar. I think that's been done very successfully. I think that the yen was initially a stalking horse. Um, and the collapse in the yen, which 
I've said before, between early March and early May was an annualized rate of 82%, which I've never, ever seen a market do. I only see governments do that. And the fall in the yen has actually elicited absolutely no surprise from the U.S. Treasury. Um, they've not said this is uh, currency manipulation, even though 18 months ago they said that when the Vietnamese dong <laughs> you know, fell by a lesser amount, they said the Vietnamese were cheating. But they've said nothing about the Japanese, the second biggest trading partner. So this must be a deliberate move um, between the U.S. and Japan. Korea has now jumped in. The yuan has successfully been hit. And so you've seen the policy of the Chinese, which has been to uh, deliberately uh, manage and stabilize the yuan, uh, basically being uh, torn to shreds. It's forced the PBOC to have a tight monetary policy for, lo for a long, long time. That now change may change. And basically what you're looking at is uh, general volatility across the Forex markets as the dollar becomes weaponized. Now, in an environment where you've got um, Russia probably, you know, rattling its saber yet again, ten geopolitical tensions high, I don't think the U.S. can stand by and let its allies, i.e. Europe and the U.K., suffer currency, big currency drops. So I think that they've got to start coming in here and giving some support. Whether that's a tacit support or an explicit uh, support, I don't know. But I think we're getting somewhere near the peak uh, in the dollar. These sort of levels of dollar rise, you always get financial crises. And the Federal Reserve and the Treasury cannot, you know, they, they cannot ignore that. I mean, they can't be blind to that. So I think that we're somewhere near the peak in the dollar, even though the fundamentals look good and there's a lot of money going into the dollar. And we know that the dollar is the, you know, it, it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's the pristine safe asset worldwide. So I think we're somewhere near the top. And on the EM debt thing, I think the point I would make is that at these sort of spreads, um, on a probably on a 12 month view, and this may be true for even for US high yield as well, you're getting very, very close to break even uh, returns. Um, uh, maybe not positive yet, but you're getting pretty close. We're not far off uh, in terms of the of the debt markets. Equity is quite a long way to go. And if you look, well, I did a I did a Twitter um, maybe last week to say if you look at the US high yield market, uh, it's telling you the the junk bond is telling you that the S and P should be trading below three thousand. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Ian, uh, over to you, Ian Harnett. Thanks very much, George. Uh, Gilberto, you know, thanks for that, that question. So I think firstly on the dollar, the, you know, a couple of things, you know, as Michael said, you are now 20% up above trend on the real effective exchange rate for the US dollar in 85 before the plaza record, it got to just about 30. So there's a bit further to go in real terms, but you're only about 12% above trend and you got to um, you know, uh, sorry, 20, 25% above trend, and you got to almost 60% above trend in nominal terms. So, you know, Michael, I, I, I'd like that to be true. But for the dollar to start coming down, real rates have to start coming down in America relative to the rest of the world. And economic growth has to pick up in the rest of the world relative to America. So either America needs to start decelerating very, very sharply, or as you say, Michael, there's a big um, uh, you know, a policy adjustment coming through from America, but that doesn't tend to happen. So I still think that you get a bit more dollar strength here. The bad news, as Michael said, is that we've got a big divergence between exchange rates. When you have that in the past, you have had major financial crises. So, you know, the 2015, um, you know, market sell-offs, big 
uh, FX divergences, 2000 to 2003, big FX divergences, 1994, big divergences, and, you know, that 87, 85 to 87 period. So, you know, this is a setting up things for stress. But I think that feeds into the second part of the question, Gilberto, which is the dollar denominated debt. There's $13 trillion, $13.4 trillion of dollar denominated debt. But almost um, $9 trillion of that is actually in developed markets, not emerging markets. So we're a watch out. Don't think this is just an EM story. It's a DM story as well. But in terms of distress, in EMBI countries, debt distress and default, you are at the same level already as you had in 2008, 2009. But, you know, I, I'm afraid I, I, where I disagree with Michael is that um, our models, when you look at things like the Senior Loan Officer Survey, suggest that default rates in US credit and probably EM credit um, and EM bonds have still got further to go if you get a global recession coming through. So, you know, I, I and that, that earned the type of earnings decline that we were talking about. So I would still be very conservative on both EM debt and uh, developed market credit. Uh, there will be an opportunity to buy, but it's probably six months down the line at least. So I'd, I'd wait, George. You know, it's really interesting listening to you all talk. I'm just reflecting. Um, I remember there was a tweet, uh, it must have been 18 months ago. Sometimes you you read certain things and they stick in your head. Uh, for instance, I can remember in February of 2000, at the peak of the tech mania, there was a quote from a managing director at Warburg Pincus. This was the height of the tech mania. And it was one of those ones. I just remember taping it to my, to my uh, terminal. And it said, if it's not tech, it's dreck. You know? And in similar fashion, I remember about 18 months ago, someone putting a tweet out. I got to find it. Something to the effect, if anyone can find it, would be great. Um, just when you, just at the time when liquidity is most plentiful and people take for granted the thing they're not concerned about is exactly the time when it's the thing you should be most concerned about. And so listening to everyone talk about whether it's, you know, merging market bonds or this currency, that currency, it's all about, you know, desperately seeking liquidity. And, you know, the tide's going out. That's the one thing that, you know, that's being taken out of the system. So it's sort of like we pulled the plug out of the bathtub and the water level's going down. And all we're arguing about is what's going down at the fastest pace. And so it gets back to um, what Mr. Blonde was saying, hold cash. Um, Ian, you wanted to jump in on that? Yeah, you know, just one of the points that we've been making to people is that this rise that we have had in bond yields inflation swaps have gone down this year it's all been about real yields and if real yields are going up that's about a, an absence of liquidity there's there's too much you know we know there's not a lot of demand for, for capital but even relative to that little amount of capital there is not enough capital which is why real yields have been going up so george you're absolutely right this is a liquidity crisis and that's why it's so dangerous for investors yeah, but Ian, Ian I'm, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this at you and Mr. Bond, Mr. Mr. Belkin, Mr. Howell, anybody. You know, it's sort of, they pumped up the liquidity, they pumped up the air in the tires, they inflated everything. And now the air's coming out of the tires. But the fact of the matter is the tire pressure is still, you know, normal. It's not below average. And so 
it's 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 you know I, I want my I want my meme stocks back. I want my SPACs back. I want my Bitcoin sixty five thousand back. I want my Arc at one fifty back. No, this is not the anomaly. The anomaly was those prices, and everyone's got sort of recency bias, saying, "Oh, you know, the price of Arc was one fifty a year ago, and now it's at, at forty. So truly, it's a buy." No, and that's what people are missing. So a great stat for this, George. And then Eric, you said Eric to speak, and Mr. Blonde obviously wants yeah. to. You know, U.S. house prices on the case sheet are at twenty percent. You know, we've got a chart of one hundred and twenty years of data. Guess how many times that that inflation on house prices has been higher? Once in December nineteen forty-six, post World War Two. You know, that's the effect that this, you know, this liquidity explosion that the Fed is engaged in you know, has, has delivered. And, you know, as you say, there's a lot of air to come out of this, Mark, but I, I, I'll shut up now and I'll probably have to sign off. Uh, it's quite late here in the UK. Well, Ian, you deserve special recognition. Thanks for coming at such a late hour. We're going to have you back in the space before too long. Let's, let's keep moving in here. I want to, I want to, I want to honor the order here. So we're going to do Carpathia and then Eric and then Rob. Carpathia, welcome, my friend. Thank you, George. Appreciate it. I want to uh, start with this but I, a statement of what a fact and maybe two analogies to help the broader audience, because this is high level, 40,000 foot stuff. Statement of fact that I, as I see it is, you know, the central banks aren't going to, aren't going to cut the legs out from the treasury at, when push comes to shove and that the cancer is in the sovereign and the solvency of the sovereign. So you, you make that, you know, I believe that. And I think others on here believe that. So, that's what we're looking at eventually three months whatever six months and then the other analogy is i go back and i'm sitting here listening to these brilliant people and i'm thinking of the movie platoon and i'm a private pilot i'm thinking about when your engine goes out so hold those two thoughts in the movie platoon the first outpost goes out that's the end the second outpost goes out it's the euro third outpost goes out um and it's the pound, and then they're on the radio, and the guy runs in and blows up the, you know, the the command post. Maybe that's the dollar. Maybe that's when the Fed shifts for the broader audience out there. That's what we're looking at. When the cancer is inside the sovereign, and the solvency of the sovereigns, the volatility goes to the debt markets and it goes to the currency markets. Hopefully, I'm saying that in a way that the broader thousand people can understand. The second analogy is. We don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know if he's really going to get to the command post. You're a private pilot. My friends and I do it to each other all the time. You're at 10,500 feet. You pull the power. Where are you going? Um, if they get to the command post, where are you going? You got no power. You got to find a field to go down in. And right now, the engine's still going by holding your cash and being defensive. You're holding your 10,500 feet. You still got a little power. The engine is sputtering. You know there's problems, but you don't really want to take action too soon because once you lose that altitude, is the field emerging markets? Is the field the bond market like I'm hearing? Is it metals like Michael says? I believe that, but I just don't know if we're there yet. So rip it apart. That's my analogy to from a you know an Irishman from South Philly. That's what I'm hearing. And I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, Carpathia. You're always welcome. Great insight. Um, 
let's move on here. We're going to do uh, Eric and then Rob and then uh, Hammercap. Eric, I think it's the first time we speak. Welcome. The floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Hi. Can, can you hear me okay? Yeah, just be sure you speak up a little bit. Speak up. Okay. So I have two questions, um, but I'd like to ask them one at a time. My first question, um, I guess, will be directed more towards uh, Michael Howe with the liquidity. Um, can you please elaborate? And I, and I just want to say, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with anything that any of the panelists have said, but can you just please elaborate? Because we've heard this, we're already in a liquidity crisis from yourself and from Ian. Can you elaborate on how the system can absorb whatever it was, $7 trillion of liquidity over a two year period? And now we've started tightening uh, really in March of 2022 at a snail's pace. And now we're just starting to accelerate now. So how is it that the system can take $7 trillion of liquidity uh, over a two year period and within three or four months we're in a liquidity crisis already? George, shall I answer that? Go for it, Mr. Howe. The the answer the the answer is is that um, first that liquidity is basically needed to roll over debt. And one of the things I was saying at the beginning here is that the financial system is no longer a new financing system; it's a refinancing system. So if you've got three hundred and fifty trillion of debt out there with an average maturity of five years, you've got to roll seventy trillion of debt every year. Now that seventy trillion compares with about 10 trillion of new financing uh, for the real economy in terms of capex, how much comes through the capital markets. So it's a seven to one ratio. The central banks don't figure on that. They're not, they're not on that page. They still think that interest rates matter. If you're rolling debt and you're refinancing debt, the rate of interest matters, but it doesn't matter that much. Okay, if you don't get the roll, you're bankrupt, or if you've got a mortgage, you're homeless, right? So the amount of liquidity is critical. And the huge amount of debt out there means that liquidity is always being absorbed, so you've got to put it in. Now, the Federal Reserve has actually started to take liquidity out this year. Although the balance sheet, the headline balance sheet, is only just inching down, the fact is that since December 15th last year, um, they've started to, they've already shrunk the balance sheet by about one and a half, or the, sorry, they've, they've shrunk their uh, net liquidity injections by about one and a half trillion dollars. So a lot has come out that may be, you know, technical factors like reverse repos or Treasury general account or the, the fall in um, uh, in Treasury is outstanding. But it's basically it's going down. And if you track and you look at uh, our Twitter feed, which is cross border at cross border cap, that handle, you'll see that, you know, pretty much every week we put a chart on, which is our estimates of net liquidity into the markets by the Fed and what the uh, and what the S&P does. And if you believe what the Federal Reserve is saying in terms of what it's going to do further, then you're talking about an S&P which is likely uh, testing 3,000. So that, that's, that's really the story. I was listening to Charlie Evans of the Chicago Fed this morning talking where he said that according to the Federal Reserve's own estimates, the amount of liquidity they're taking out of the system is equivalent to something like 30 basis points to 50 basis points on Fed funds. I mean, these guys must be smoking something. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. They, the only reason they're saying that is they're trying to 
get people off guard, I would I would assume. So when they do start this QE, they can't be blamed for, um, you know, uh, essentially, uh, um, you know, doubling down or something. But it's uh, the fact is that liquidity really matters a lot. And we've only just started to get liquidity out. But it's it's so crucial at the margin uh, for debt refinancing that you just wait and see. You'll see you'll see refinancing problems like we saw in uh, in 2019 or even before that 2008. Thanks for that, Michael. Eric, did you have a second question? Um, yeah, I, I sent you a DM, George. I'm not sure if you can pop up the uh, the tweet into the nest. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll put that up in the Yeah, go ahead. Yep, go on. Okay, so so I have a uh, I share the pessimism with the panel on on where we're headed in terms of earnings, in terms of the economy. Um, but I'd like to play devil's advocate to my own thesis and to what we've heard on the panel so far. So I'm not sure if the tweet is embedded at the top yet, um, but what the tweet shows is the ratio of IWM to TLT, which in my view is the market's proxy for nominal growth. And on the right, I have a coincident index of nominal growth. And what you can see is that the two are highly correlated as they should be. And so far, the market has been correct to hold the ratio of IWM to TLT near the highs because coincident measures of nominal growth have not collapsed. If coincident measures of nominal growth do in fact decline, then I would expect the ratio of IWM to TLT to fall. Now, I think I and everyone on the panel agrees that that's where nominal growth is heading. However, we've also heard from most of the panelists that the Fed is going to have to come in and support the market with liquidity, perhaps with the balance sheet, perhaps by lowering rates as soon as three months. Uh, based on my calculations, there's no chance that core inflation can be, uh, you know, something like sub 4% in the next three months. So what we're saying here is the Fed is going to have to support the economy and the markets with liquidity at a time when core inflation is double or two and a half times their target. That also means that nominal growth perhaps could be reinvigorated. So if that's your view, why would you not hold a preference for stocks over bonds or the asset that generally benefits in nominal growth? Uh, another way that we can look at the same proxy is if you look at gold to TLT or GLD to TLT. That's the market's expectations of long-term inflation expectations, something like five-year, five-year forwards. The ratio of gold to TLT is extremely elevated. To me, that suggests that the market is anticipating exactly what you're saying, which is that the Fed is going to come in prematurely before inflation has been fully resolved. And then we're going to have a situation where inflation expectations are uh, long-term inflation expectations are sustainably elevated and therefore asset allocators should hold the preference of stocks over bonds, which is the uh, expression of nominal GDP growth. So um, I'm not saying that's my view, uh, but that's the opposing view to, to what all of us have. So I'd like everyone to maybe kick that around. So Eric, just specifically, because it was a very well-worded question, maybe just summarize the question because it was it's quite a quite a nuanced question. Okay. Sure. So, so to summarize, 
if the Fed is going to come in in the next couple of months and support the economy before inflation has been uh, restored, why is it wrong for asset allocators to hold a preference for stocks over bonds? I'll take a I'll take a you shot. Want to take a shot yeah, I got it. Yeah, go. Yeah. So well, yep. I think there's I think there's a couple of things. One is I, I think that um, uh, so it's a it's a good chart. It's a good relationship. Makes a lot of sense. My only hesitation is is that it's also only over the last ten years. I think we probably should look at this over um, different regimes uh, for starters to to understand whether this relationship holds this way. But as it pertains to a specific you know market view. Uh, I alluded to this earlier, I, and I think this is one of the important um, things that ha- has changed in the Fed sort of reaction function or what we would you know, deem to be the behavior of the Fed. Now, I think Michael Howell's view is that ultimately they'll they'll balk on this and, and they will change. But what I've heard from the Fed recently is that they are expecting and accepting recession-like conditions, right, to, to be on the on the right side of the inflation debate. Now, let, let's say that happens in this three to six month window. I think what will happen um, is that your coincident nominal growth index will fall. As a result, you'll see the ratio of IWM to TLT will also fall. Perhaps the market will anticipate some of what uh, Michael Howell is suggesting and that the Fed uh, you know, will in the, in the future pivot, um, even if it doesn't happen immediately to this, which can um, ultimately result in a um, TLT or or duration rallying in the in the face of stocks still falling down, which is all generally pretty consistent with what happens um, in the early to middle stages of a of a recession, right? And when when yield curves start to re-steepen, that's not typically an environment where stock prices go up. So a lot of what we see, I think, in this chart is is a is a function of the you know the regime where we didn't have you know recessions, you know. March 2020 event-driven recession, notwithstanding. So I think that's 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 one um, that's one aspect of this, which is maybe a little bit more a function of timing. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that inflation, realized inflation, might not show to be as low as as it um, as we think it needs to be for the Fed to sort of you know kind of re-stimulate. But I also would say that history suggests, I, I think, pretty strongly in most cases, inflation follows growth. And if you have a situation where nominal growth has fallen off pretty dramatically, um, your inflation profile six, nine, 12 months later is going to be dramatically different than what you realized in the last 12 months. And so I think that, that that's probably the part that gives the Fed some air cover um, in whatever pivot may take place. I mean, or if I, if I sort of answer your question the right way, I mean, I, I guess my bottom line is I think that this this chart or this ratio of IWM to TLT will fall pretty dramatically first. Um, I, I'm maybe less sure how quickly the Fed will respond to those recession conditions um, if we take them on their word. I think that initially they'll try to hold the line until they, you know, until you have, you know, the something breaks moment um, and ultimately they have to cave, uh, which could still very well fall in Michael Hell's six month window. Um, and in that, case, um, my guess is your break-evens are already falling pretty dramatically. Uh, Commodity prices are substantially lower and the inflation outlook looks quite different, um, you know, in the, you know, in the forward, in forward space than it does today. 
Thanks, thanks, Mr. Vaughn. I don't know. I think Eric must. I don't know if his phone died or whatever, but he uh, is a great question. But he's he's left the room, so Eric has left the building, as they say. So let's move on. Uh, we're gonna go to Rob. Hey, Rob. Good to see you. Please unmute yourself, Rob. Hey, George and everybody. Uh, I first, I I've got a few sort of prepared notes here. I think I may have found those bulls for you, George. Um, but first, just on what we were just talking about. So, yeah, maybe the Fed steps in and does what a lot of the bulls hope in three months. But if they do, it's probably because the market's down 40, 45 percent from its peak earlier this year. So uh, that's my take on that. Uh, by the way, uh, Lashana Tova, Happy New Year to everybody who is celebrating. Um, and, uh, you know, there's... I started writing uh, uh, just last week, uh, posting articles on Seeking Alpha. And the cool thing about this is that, you know, you get people to say, oh, nice article, nice take, et cetera. The first two articles I wrote, one was, uh, and I think I just posted this in a nest, the case for S&P 500 down to 2200. And you know, I laid out some history and some current environments and, you know, my usual technicals because, you know, that's kind of where I, I view things. Uh, second one was basically trashing the 60-40 portfolio. But it's funny because, you know, when you put stuff out there to the retail uh, investor, and granted, Seeking Alpha is a mixture of retail and professional, but mostly retail, um, that's, I think, if there's anything I can do for this space in the next few months, is to let you guys know what the bulls are saying. So if you don't mind, George, I've got a few highlights from some of the comments I've received on my articles. And okay, if I... Bring it, bring it, go for it. Okay, good. Uh, these are in order from least offensive to me uh, to most. So first, uh, record low unemployment, COVID reopening, gas prices coming down, inflation easing. We're on the cusp of a major bull market rally. Given the FOMC's adjusted dot plot on expected future rates, we expect easing conditions to return mid-next year. Target on the S&P 500, 62.50. That's one. Second one. I'm 65% fixed income, bonds, preferred stocks, funds, 25% stocks, REITs, BDCs, uh, business development companies. I'm only down 14%. My income's up 8% year over year. Feels better. Nobody's telling him, I think, how the math works on that. Uh, it's great that you're getting the income, but you know, if you lose half your money, uh, you're kind of paying yourself um with money you're losing all right uh, a couple more interesting analysis but too bearish at 2200 yeah maybe that's the case is never guarantee um th this is not march 2020 nor is it the highly leveraged world we're living in in 0708 company balance sheets are in solid shape blah 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 uh higher rates will not uh um uh make this like uh you know 2020 and besides we have an aggressive fed um uh, then they get a little bit uh, more personal. I learned nothing from this post. Doom and gloom should have been written 10 months ago, to which I pointed out I've been writing about this for three and a half years. So I raised his 10 months to 41 months because that's when I first started saying 60-40 is trash. Anyway, um, you know, well, I, I feel great because I'm in defensive stocks and he you know, names a bunch of tickers, you know, the kind of high quality, you know, growth kind of stuff. Uh, and then the last one, I've never seen a bigger mix of voodoo uh, horse blank and mumbo jumbo crystal ball all mixed together. Uh, at least the other analysts based the numbers on PE ratios, earnings revisions, yield and interest rates, dividends, and other actually 
technical and verifiable factors. There's one ounce of actual rationale, except believe me. So take all that, and I would love to hear this remarkable group's take on any piece of that that they believe is accurate, or if they want to basically say what I've heard in these spaces a lot lately, which is eh, retail doesn't know what's going to hit them. Rob, let me put it back on you. I what, see dead people. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, what, <laughs> Rob, what's the most plausible or intelligent bull case that you've respectful, intelligent, thoughtful bull case? You've no, they don't have a clue. In my small practice, um, I was fired by a guy, big account, and uh, had him 70. You know, I just consult. I don't do OPM anymore. I run my family office. And uh, long-term friend, you know, did really well, 75% cash in July. And I get a text coming out of church. Um, you're too bearish. Um, there's a collective delusion going on. And you just, I mean, you can, you can do your best and talk to them, but you can't educate them with your 37, 40 years, whatever these guys in this room have. You just do your best and you put the, you know, you put the information out there and you save who you can save. You know, not everybody's going to get in the lifeboat and you just have to, you know, it's clear as a bell to me and I'm sure people in this room. Nobody knows really because we've never been here before. And it's a timing issue, what Ian and these people are saying and what I say. To me, they're, go they're not going to throw the treasuries under the bus. So they got to come back in unless there's some political event or there's some external event that completely throws that equation off. They're coming back in. So I just need to know what field to land the plane in. I don't know yet. I'm going to keep my altitude, and no, you can't save them all. Thanks for that, Carpathia. Rob, those are really interesting comments you got, but uh, I don't know. It's just, it's you can't think stupid. I'm not the you're not used Well, to yeah, I, you, uh, I, I didn't know if you were you were aiming that last question at me. No, uh, no, no, no. What's my base case, or no, no, no? I'm saying no, 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 no. The question, okay. The question is, what's the most credible bull case that you've heard? Not, not your. Not what you believe, but what's the most oh, God, what's God. the most credible bull case that you've heard, Rob? I think I heard a few minutes ago that uh, that you know the 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 Federal step in and say, okay, uh, you know we were wrong on transitory, we were wrong on this, we were wrong on that, and you know now we're wrong to uh, sacrifice the stock market, uh, you know the way uh, Jim Bianco and so many other brilliant folks here have been saying for months. Um, you know, and, and at some point, uh, you know, they use the word pain, um, pal does, but it's, uh, you know, eventually, uh, they, they may reverse course on that too. Uh, I actually said in the article last week that the 2200 S and P article, I, I said, if the fed may waves their a magic wand and everybody responds, that's the best bull case. And I still believe that is, it doesn't mean it can't happen though. That's the key. You know, even if there's like just like you say all the time, George, right? So you're saying there's a chance. Yes, there's always a chance that all of the fundamental, technical, quantitative, historical, sentimental, you know, emotional stuff that makes so many people in this room believe that we're going to follow through to the downside in stocks and we're going to follow through the downside in bonds and commodities and gold are not going to help you enough. You know, yeah. we, so many people believe that. 
but there's always a chance, and that's yeah. about as far as I can go. As 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 Groucho right. uh, paraphrase Groucho Marx, you know, uh, if you're a bull, it's like you know, I've had a great year. This wasn't it. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. All right, so Nas, if you have a quick follow up, have at it. Otherwise, I want to go on to uh, Hammer and then Jeffrey. Nas, you got a quickie? Oh, okay. I'll get rid of the other ones, and here's the quickie. Um, given what what Rob just said then there's a question that comes out as what do people want to see have happen or what they what do they believe we'll see what happen what what i'm personally my issue is there's so much stuff in the system if we don't have a reasonable amount of capital destruction the next cycle will be even worse so my wish is that we don't you know fall through the hole my want is basically enough capital destruction to prevent the next cycle being so bad that i have to duck under some concrete shelter uh, to find security. So I, I guess basically it's, you know, is it is the capital destruction actually something that we're looking for and we want? So the, the depression, the pressing information we're hearing here is basically, is this a necessity to keep us from having something worse happen down the road? I, I, I don't want to be too moralistic about it or, um what's necessary i just tend to look at the system as a sort of dynamic organism that self-corrects unfortunately um you know it hasn't been a level playing field the uh, last uh, umpteen years because the fed has been tilting the pinball machine but if you just let it i don't know if it's um that i think it's just planning for me it's just planning what the like most high probability outcome is that they will not want that concrete ducking under a bunker so that's what i gotta play my goal is to make money not to you know go beyond that i know that sounds shallow but that's my goal survive survival amen if you know they 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 call it tail risk for reason right like sometimes the tail actually occurs and and it looks like we're staring it in the face the question is are you going to do anything productive about it or are you going to try to make excuses like uh, as you call it the cartoon network yeah all right let's let's just hold that there so eric got bound eric have we lost george no i'm here can you hear me can anyone hear me hello i can hear you george all right cool all right so eric i can't hear george i'm gonna leave and come back all right yeah carpathy you leave so eric i know i know the app was getting jiggy on you i think your first question was answered eric did you want to repeat your second question yeah i um I was actually able to jump back in. I heard most of the of the answer from Mr. Blonde. I just want to um, sort of push back. What I'm trying to get at here is the market uh, pricing in a new secular regime of elevated long-term inflation expectations. I understand short-term break-evens, like five-year break-evens, uh, are coming down quite dramatically, although they're still significantly elevated relative to their longer run average. But if you look at something like five year, five year forwards published on Fred, today they closed at 2.3%, where the 10 year average is 2.05. So I believe we're heading into a recession. Everyone, all the panelists believe we're heading into a recession, which presumably would significantly lower inflation expectations. But here, the market is pricing long-term inflation expectations above their 
average. And that view is corroborated by the ratio of GLD to TLT, which is significantly elevated. So my view is that the market is correct to price that in should the Fed come in and support the markets prematurely. And the Fed may actually have to hold the line here for, for um, through the beginning of something breaking. Now, of course, they're going to have to step again at some point. But if something happens in you know, Thanksgiving or the early part of December, in my view, and, and, and Michael Howe may strongly disagree, I don't feel that they've withdrawn uh, sufficient liquidity to pivot at that time uh, without reigniting the liquidity that's already in the system. And, and therefore, the market would be correct to keep long-term inflation expectations elevated. So I just want to, you know, uh, re-throw that back into the ring, which is, yeah, short-term inflation expectations are coming down with commodity prices, as they always do. But long-term inflation expectations are staying elevated, as well as the ratio of gold to TLT, as well as the divergence between gold and real rates. So what is the gold market seeing? What are the long-term inflation expectations seeing? And should we be concerned about um, the Fed coming in too early is the market is the market basically anticipating what we all think is going to happen here. Well, I'll, I'll you know I I think knowing what the so like listen I think the hard part is is to say like is the market today actually that thoughtful to price in what could be a ten year regime change? I don't think so. I, I, I think what will happen is if if nominal growth falls. Like and we have recession-like conditions, that IWM-TLT ratio will also fall. So what I said at the outset, and I think that you know this is something I'll do, and I'm sure you will as well. I mean, I think we need to go back and look at that ratio during periods like the 70s and 80s. My guess is that in those periods too, they were still hypersensitive to cyclical growth conditions, meaning ultimately when you went into recession, equities underperformed duration. I think part of what we're seeing right now in that ratio is the market is not currently convinced or assuming that we're on the doorsteps of a recession or it's not priced for that environment. The same way that we just talked about, you know, analysts don't cut earnings estimates by 20 or 30 percent, even if that might be the ultimate outcome. They don't do it until it smacks them in the face. So I, I, this is where I would say the large majority of the market correction to date has been more about adjusting overvaluation and liquidity and has not been about um, a forecast or a view for recession conditions or significant profit declines. Thanks for that, Mr. Blonde. Much appreciated. Um, let's keep it moving. Eric, did you, have a, did you want to comment on that, Eric? Um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to... Uh, maybe he doesn't have a, a comment, but I just wanted to know if, if, if Michael had any any thoughts on that. I, I may have left when he had something to say, uh, but I was curious on, on what his view about uh, about all that was. Let, let me just answer that. I think the, I mean, we, we're really debating uh, the timing of this. I mean, I, I don't think the Fed has got the, the willingness, the inclination, or the, maybe the ability to come in uh, in the next two to three months, anything like as close as that. I'm thinking much more of some sort of pivot once the economy is in recession, where the evidence is pretty clear that unemployment is spiking upwards. And that may be early part of 23. I think that's the point. I'd, I'd say, I mean, I, I, I'm going to put a question to George now, 
which is sort of in this um, in this same theme. And I remember it may have been about 10 years ago, George, I forget. But you said to me, there's only one piece of information you really need to know. I'm sure it was you said this. And that is the profile of the market uh, in the four in the four years of elections. So basically, if you're in the third year, it's normally always a bullish year for the market. Now, has that changed? Are we in a different is this a different regime? Because we're coming up to year three in 23, if I'm unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, well, I think you're asking a question, you know, the answer to, I mean, you know, that's a seasonality and presidential cycle. That's, that's not to me, it's not predictable. It's just a condition. And, um, you know, we're, I mean, Michael, you and I have known each other for so many years. I mean, one of the things I have real problems, people, you see all this backtesting stuff and whatever. And they, you know, there was one today or yesterday. Oh, gee, you know, X percentage of the market is below its 50 day moving average for two days in a row. And every time that this has happened, you know, 39 out of 40 times over the next 12 months, the market's higher, blah, 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 blah. So I think we're going through a regime change. And, um, you know, I, I tend to ignore those types of um, the, the, those types of precedents that you were speaking to, Michael Howe. Um, so I don't know. I, uh, I, I, I just think it's a giant. The winds are really shifting. And, um, you know, you have, a, you have a whole generation of investors who have been conditioned by the most, you know, plentiful liquidity conditions in you know, recorded history. And we are going to try to head back to something more normal. We may be limited by that, given that there may be financial accidents and the Fed has to come in and so on and so forth. But and so we have limited degrees of freedom, perhaps. But um, the one thing I'm certain of, or the lowest probability, I should say certain, that's a, that's too strong a term. The thing I deem to be most least likely is Goldilocks and the buoyant, you know, liquidity conditions accompanied with growth that's, you know, not too hot, not too cold. And that was the heroin for asset prices. And that is not coming back. So we can go on about, gee, we're going to have a big recession. We're going to break things and maybe go to the promised land of Rob's, you know, 2200 and, you know, Michael Belkin similarly and, and Michael Howe, you, and you've talked, spoken about you know, sub 3000 or, you know, on the way to the recession or in the midst of the recession, they're going to, they're going to, you know, they'll pivot, like, as you say, and, um, you know, we'll have inflation kick back up again from the parts of the economy where you have scarce resources so, you know, I think you're looking very much at a more of a stop-go, more volatile regime going forward and completely antithetical to what 99% of investors have been accustomed to. And, that, and that's why I got hot on, because people are just extrapolating uh, the past. And, you know, Jim Bianco made a really good point the other day. He was pointing out how after the, G, you know, after the GFC, it's always been obviously the benefit of hindsight. Michael Howe, I'd like to put this question to you. And Eric, if you want to answer as well. Post-GFC, um, if you look at what inflation, look at inflation expectations, look what the bond market was discounting. Everyone kept expecting, oh, inflation is going to go up, rates are going to go up, inflation is going to go up, rates are going to go up. And they never did. We had the great moderation for all the reasons we know, you know globalization and excess savings and, you know, oil prices. We know all the reasons, right? But the point was the inflation never came up. To the, the market was always disappointed by how much inflation went up. And now Jim, Pia, Jim Bianco's now arguing, and I side with him, we have the opposite. 
that people still think it's business as usual, the regime that we had before is still in, pro- in progress. And the reality is, no, inflation is, you know, it's transitory. It's transitory. All right, it didn't come down last year, it'll come down next year. Don't worry. It'll come down to 2%, if not 3%, 4%. And the risk is it doesn't come down as quickly or as much as people think it will. And therefore, and this goes back, Eric, to your, you know, five-year, five-year forward citations, all that kind of crap. Like, you know, I don't believe the bond market. It's like, just because the forward expectations say that, you know, by what God-given right should we believe them? It's like saying, oh, you know, here's the P-E ratio on a stock. It's, you know, multiples expanded from, you know, 30 times to 50 times. Well, that means growth must be accelerated. That means it's a high-growth stock. Well, that may be the case. But where you make the money is, it's not always the case. And where you make the money is figuring out when it's not true. And I would argue, and I'd point out, argue, I'd point out as a matter of fact, not opinion, fact, the bond market's done a horrible job of predicting inflation. I mean, you go back and you look, I mean, I'll tell on a short-term basis, go back and look the last year or two, go, go back, you know, and they were saying it's transitory and just look at the forward curves. It's coming down, it's coming down, it's coming down. These guys have been so wrong. Why would you believe them? So I don't know, Michael Howe, any, you could say I'm full of it, half full of it, or Michael Howe, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that if you look at the inflation response after the uh, GFC, um, it didn't happen because you didn't get money going into the real economy. And one of the things that we distinguish between is basically we talk about liquidity, which is really money in the financial sector. So it's looking at essentially, you know, transactions between financial entities. Uh, That money is much bigger than the pool of money that's in the real economy. It moves faster. Money that's in the real economy is really what you capture in things like M1, M2, the normal monetary aggregates. So what you basically had after the GFC was a big increase in financial liquidity because the Fed injected funds and liquidity in the financial sector shot up. So asset prices went up, but you didn't get that passed through into the real economy because you had austerity policies at the same time. And basically, uh, as a result of that, uh, the real economy didn't really respond. It took a long time to respond. There was no inflation follow through. The difference between that and what happened in COVID is the uh, parallel response of the fiscal authorities pushed money into the real economy. So you got whopping great increases in the monetary aggregates, the traditional M1, M2. They just rocketed in a way that we've never seen before. And that was because the liquidity the Fed created was force fed into the real economy. So you had an increase in financial liquidity, but probably a bigger increase in real economy liquidity. And that's why you got the inflation problem. And Michael, Hall, let me ask, Michael Hall, let me ask you a question. You know, I think most observers have been surprised that we've seen rates rocket up as they have. And you really haven't seen any sort of really tremendous financial distress. What if, you know, what if I were to assert to you, say to you, you know what? All that money that's created, all that QE nonsense. Yeah, jacked up asset prices. It didn't, and I think I'm just repeating what you said. It, it didn't really have all that much of a great effect on the real economy. And if we now run the movie in reverse and we take away that liquidity, maybe where it's really felt is asset prices, but people are overhyping, overestimating the economic fall out of that. So, you know, whereas before, for many years, we had a situation where, you know, Wall Street was doing really well and Main Street not so much. I'm not saying Main Street's not hurting, I don't get me wrong. But what I am saying is maybe with people getting carried away that just because the market's going down that, you know, therefore it means the economy is going to, you know, really slam into the wall. In other words, it, or put it another way, not that we're not going to have a recession, I believe we will, but it's going to be it felt more savagely, more strongly in the financial economy than in the real economy. 
Well, I think you could be right in that regard, but take a look at on the FRED database that the um, uh, that the, the Federal Reserve puts out. Um, that FRED database will give you money supply figures, uh, M2. M2 is a gauge of money in the real economy, retail bank deposits. They're now, they're now negative year on year. This is a sort of decline in money supply that you haven't seen uh, for a long, long, long time. And that's telling you that the U.S. real economy is going to recession big time. Right. I agree with that, but I was yeah, sorry, Mr. Boy. I think you want. Yeah, to- no. I, I look. I, I got to run in a minute, but I, look, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the not that anybody in the panel is saying this explicitly, but I, I do think in the market there's sort of this implicit view that whatever recession we have this time will have shades of the last recession, or you know, and I'm not sure that that's the case. I, I'm sort of more of the opinion, and I think this is what you're saying, George, that we sort of you know post QE post, you know, basically zero rates forever mentality world, post an environment where inflation was never really much of an issue or a threat. Um, we've sort of forgot what recessions and we forgot what market corrections really feel like. And that we've sort of have moved back into an environment of more boom bust type cycles, inventory cycles, inflation cycles, which are obviously, you know, somewhat closely related. And that um, I'll use an analogy. This is actually something that um I think Nassim Taleb said this was probably back in like 2011 at some conference. But you know, central bank, you know, the economy and markets are a complex system. Complex systems need volatility uh, in order to grow and adapt. You know, I think you know you could also make the analogy that it's like going to the gym, right? You know, how do you get bigger and stronger? You go to the gym, you rip muscle, you tear. It's actually a pretty violent act, and and from that healing is what makes you bigger and stronger. Now, the problem is, is that most people don't want to get up at five in the morning and go to the gym. It's not the first thing on their list to do. And instead, you know, there's so there's a cohort of people that don't do that, don't go through that violence and don't go through that exercise. And instead, they sit on the couch. They want to avoid that volatility. They want to avoid that violence. But over time, you apathy and then you're weak. And so you're much more vulnerable to shocks as a result. I think that ultimately at the end of the day, like letting markets, you know, kind of you'll be a little bit more of the you know, you know, pricing risk without the crutch of, you know, central bank at every, at every turn is probably in the end a good thing. The challenge right now is because we haven't had to deal with it for the better part of 25 or 30 years, it's extremely uncomfortable. And so I'm not sure if we have regime change and we end up in a new higher inflation regime. I mean, I, I do think that one of the things that is likely to change is that we have a little bit more of a boom bust environment and we're out of the great moderation and a lot of the things that have supported that over the last, you know, 25 years. Um, and but like that kind of market volatility, once we once we set and get into that new equilibrium, I think we'll be OK. It's just we're still very much in that transition on the backside of it, uh, you know, post COVID. But that's, you know, I, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of you know, put that out there. It sounds like we're on the same page yeah, you know, on, on that, George. Yeah. Mr. Blonde, that's really well said. Let me just take a quick break here. We're going to wrap this room up in like 15, 20 minutes. But Mr. Blonde, I know you got to run. So I want to thank you. Um, it's been fantastic. Really, really enjoyed your comments. I, I think I'm speaking for Michael Howell and Michael Belkin and the whole rest of the room as well. And so I hope you'll come back. It's been absolutely fabulous. So, uh, Mr. Blonde, you're welcome to stay, but don't feel any obligations to be on the call of duty two hours. And Mr. Howell, it's 1130 at night where you are. So don't feel any I- obligations. I've yeah, got to jump as well. George. Yeah, I, I know you're good. So, Thanks, so, Mr. Blonde. Yeah, Thanks, so 
Yeah, Michael, anytime. We'll see you again before. We'll see you again real soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, so let's move on to the few remaining uh, people on the stage. I want to get get work everyone in here. Um, I think we're going to go to hold on, Javier. I'm going to get to in a minute, but there have been others have been waiting here. Um, I want to go to Hammer. He's been here for a long time. Hammer Cap, welcome. What's up? Please unmute yourself, Hammer Cap. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me okay? You're perfect. We got you. Great. Well, thanks so much for another great spaces. And thank you to um, both Michael Howell, Michael Belkin and Mr. Blonde. It's been it's been great. I'll, um, I could say more, but in the interest of time. Um, so Michael, Michael Howell's comments earlier on suggested that the JPY's decline against the US dollar, you know, may to some extent have had the US authorities blessing. Um, otherwise, they may have been more vocal about it. Um, but um, presumably, this this has some limits, and and um, to how far it can go before there needs to be some change to um, the the hugely stimulative um, yield curve control policy. And even it might even come from domestic um, population getting annoyed at the destruction of their purchasing power globally. To be honest, um, and so my question is if. If that happens um, at some stage soon, would that be another significant um, uh, deterioration in global liquidity and potential um, uh, catalyst for a move further down in risk assets? Because presumably it would result in a lower rate of uh, QE that cannot then seep from Japan into other um, bond markets and then asset markets. Right. So... um... I'm sorry, I just got distracted. Does anyone on the panel want to take that question? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry Hammer. What was the question succinctly? Because I'm, I'm sorry, I got distracted for a second. It's okay. Um, so uh, if if the BOJ is uh, pressured to end uh, yield curve control because the uh, weakness of JPY against USD is getting uh, too ridiculous, would that be another big leg down for uh, risk assets? Because it's a, it would be a reduction of, uh, you know, global QE. Hammer, you're not making my job any easier. I'm getting all these back-channel direct messages. This is an echo chamber. You're too bearish, blah, 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 blah. I had no idea what you were going to say. I'm not paying you to say that. As if this room wasn't bearish enough, you had to come and ask that question, okay? Of course, it's another problem. I mean, the only thing I'll say is deferring to the likes of Michael Howell and um, other Japan watchers who I respect. Um, I don't, they point to that Kuroda's term isn't up until March. And so the current thinking is that, yeah, they will from time to time engage in open mouth operations. And when it gets disorderly, they'll step in as they did the other day. But essentially the, 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 the path is not going to change until Kuroda is out. I don't know uh, if Eric, you wanted to respond to that, but that's, that's my two cents. I did the best I could to argue the, uh, the bull case, George. Um, for, uh, for, for what it's worth, I agree with, with all the panelists and, uh, and Mr. Blonde, um, I can't endorse Mr. Blonde's work strongly enough. I, I read everything he puts out. I really enjoy his work. Um, I was just trying to, um, sort of get to the bottom of why the market is reluctant to price in what seems like an obvious eventuality from four or five people on the panel. Um, uh, I, I apologize, though. I, I, I'm not an expert in foreign exchange or, or, or the BOJ uh, and, and their operations. I mean, I agree with you, George, that um, 
you know, it would be another problem that we have to deal with. But I, I don't want to comment on, um, you know, exactly what that would mean for markets. Cause it's just not an area I'm, I'm expert in. I appreciate your candor, and Eric. We, we, I want to have you back, and we're going to do a room where you are you can you can hold court because I, I really 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 enjoy listening to you speak. All right, let's keep this moving. I want to try to wind this room down. Um, I want to go to Jeffrey, and then Javier. Jeffrey, uh, good to see you. Please unmute yourself, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, are you there? All right, hearing none. Javier, yeah, my yeah, friend. Oh, sorry, George. Can you hear me? Go for it. Yeah, we got you. Go for it, Jeffrey. Oh, okay. Real quickly. I just wanted to say I run a small RIA. We have 400 million or so in assets. Um, and I don't think that a lot of the professional people like yourself appreciate how embedded this idea of the Fed saving the day is. As I talk to the clients and try to get them to a more defensive posture, we have discretion, but it's a very difficult uh, thing to get people to believe. And what's interesting about it is it's not the younger people. It's not the people that are, you know, 30 to 40. It's the people that are 50 to 60 that, you know, all they want to talk about is when is the right time to buy Amazon, more Amazon? When's the right time to buy Apple? You know, when does NVIDIA bottom? Uh, I, I truly think we are the, the whole thing of that selling process of those people isn't going to occur until we get much lower, and that's going to be the thing that eventually drives the market down to some silly, probably lower level. I don't. I have no idea. Uh, but I, I think the underappreciated part of this is how few people have sold, uh, specifically the folks in the passive investments and the large tech. It's why Apple doesn't go down. Eventually, it will. But you know, I remember 2000. The last holdout, as I recall, was Sun Microsystems. You know, it, it kept doing okay, kept doing okay, kept doing okay, and all of a sudden the party was over and everything went south. So that's all I had to say. Just wanted to throw that in there. You know, I appreciate that. It's a great insight. And while, you know, year to date the market's down a lot, we've not had the sort of cathartic, you know, face ripping, VIX exploding, smasheroo. And maybe that's the hook in this bear market. Maybe it'll never come or because it'll come much later for exactly the reasons you're saying, Jeffrey. And and that's going to be the hook because everyone says, oh, you know, there is a VIX of 60 and blah, 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 blah. That's the bottom. It'll never come because it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, you know, machines, algos, indexation. And it's maybe it gets back to the element of time that we talked about. Time kills more people than price. And that, that's how it happens. It just goes down. Yeah, it, it bleeds yeah. like it has been. And yep. then we get one day maybe that's down, you know, three or four percent. And that's that. Yep. And yep. it's yep. not going to be like we thought. No, exactly. I, I think you're on to something, Jeffrey. It's a really good insight. Thank you for that. All right. Let's go now to uh, Winfield Smart. Winfield, welcome. What's on your mind, my friend? Yes, sir. Thanks for letting me join. I just wanted to throw two ideas out there, which... If you guys are looking for bullish uh, ideas, and I'm not really bullish, but I'm just noting that the federal debt to GDP is four times what it was in the 70s. So the way debt is paid back, if you go back 100 years, is by letting real rates run negative for several years in a row. So... That's one idea that would make them 
pivot and maybe blend in a little bit of curve control uh, to keep those real rates negative to hit the general public with the hidden tax, which is inflation, uh, and mandate that they hold fixed rate bonds, which has been done in the past to pensions and other holders of fixed rate bonds. So they lose money for a few years to pay back the debt. Um, that could make them pivot early. The second thing that would make them pivot early is um, trying to remember the main, the main idea is the negative real rate uh, thing. Oh, sorry. Here it is. So the dollar, right? We're going over 114. We're at one, we were at 80, you know, less than two years ago. So there's at least 20 countries that are, have a lot of us dollar denominated liabilities that are right on the breaking point, if not on the breaking point. So since we're playing geopolitical chess with China and Russia and India and Iran and Pakistan and North Korea, uh, and we're trying to hold the EU together and give them as much energy as we can spare, we, we're going to have to be more mindful. And if you're looking at Twitter today, we're going to have to be more mindful of what the dollar is doing to the rest of the world. Uh, we, we can't just raise rates blindly to control our own inflation. So it is a geopolitical game as well. So those are two bullish ideas. I'm not bullish. Like I'm waiting for S&P 3000 and high yield plus 800. Uh, but I think that those ideas, if any, uh, could cause the Fed to pivot a little bit earlier. I, I would love to hear what you guys think about that. I appreciate that, Win and Midfield. Um, and I mean, implicit in what you're saying, though, is that in real terms, as has already been the case, maybe not nominal. Got to, one, one, one nuance that's that's lost a lot of these discussions, the difference between nominal and real. But in real terms, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I can accept that. But in, in real terms, you know, that wealth is going to get destroyed. I mean, and so, you know, whether whether in nominal terms, it's not such a big hit because you point out they'll pivot and whatever. In real terms, it's going to get destroyed. So I just I just think in real terms, there's going to be a lot of wealth destruction occurring. And we can argue that, how you know, in, in the extent to which it's nominal will depend on, you know, what the central banksters do. Um, I think one concept to think of is if you get in a situation where they they try to print they try to pump and the bubble doesn't inflate and that can happen it has a lot to do with market psychology when you have a broken market it doesn't matter how much you cut it's it, not saying necessarily but you can have a situation where the animal spirits aren't there and you've got you know and people just want to take their take their take their bat and ball and go home you get a situation, you get falling rates, increasing liquidity, and risk assets don't go up. We've seen this before. So I agree with your possible scenario. I just don't know how it's going to play out. Um, yeah. I, I have a comment, if, if it's all right, if I jump in. Yeah, go for it, Eric. Yeah. Um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about this concept of inflating away the debt because it's popular um, narrative that's thrown around. Just to put some numbers on, on – um, 
the debt profile. You mentioned in the 70s, aggregate debt to GDP, both public and private sector, was about 170% of GDP. Uh, today, it's 370. So it's 200 percentage points higher. However, um, a, a major difference is that the composition of the uh, debt burden on the federal level is, is basically all entitlements. And all of these entitlements have implicit or explicit links to CPI. So as CPI rises, the spending rises just as fast. So based on what's built into law, they can't escape this debt burden by running the CPI really high and having uh, rates below the level of inflation because uh, the federal spending will rise just as fast. Um, just to um, put some, some numbers on that, I think everyone would agree that this year we've had the highest inflation in 40 years. But nominal GDP is up $880 billion and total non-financial sector debt is up $2.5 trillion. So the highest inflation in 40 years has resulted in debt still growing faster than the nominal GDP or, or the debt to GDP ratio rising. So this concept that we're going to be able to inflate our way out of debt when all of the debt that's coming on balance sheet is implicitly or explicitly linked to the CPI, I think is flawed. Yeah, but they're gonna they have redefined CPI as they did in nineteen eighty. And I and I mean right now it's it's kind of like not picking up a few things or at least the percentages of things correctly. So I, I hear your I do agree with your point to some degree, but I think that they're going to play with that like they have in the past a little bit. Oh, yeah, I, I, I hear that. But I would just also make the note that not all of these entitlement programs are linked to the CPI level. It's actually even more specific than that. So uh, yeah. a lot of food stamp programs are linked to the food portion of CPI. Um, so it, it, it's quite granular. And I don't see um, I don't see any political movements at the moment to change the calculation of CPI. And I think that once we get into this, we get into a little bit of um a little conspiratorial that they're going to tinker with the CPI to artificially keep it below where, where it's been and, and, and all these kinds of things. And um, I, I certainly see that that's possible, but I would just like to point out the facts that we've had the highest inflation in 40 years and debt is still rising faster than nominal GDP. The debt to GDP ratio is still rising. So, um, yeah. so, you know, highest inflation in 40 years, debt's not melting away. It's still going up. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so, I, I mean, I know we're trying to get the room in a bullish direction, but uh, I, it, it's, it's a point that uh, is, is a pet peeve of mine because people sort of just throw out this idea that we're just going to inflate this thing away. Uh, um, and, you know, Larry Kotlikoff ha has written a piece on this when, when he, he basically mentioned U.S., Europe. Um, we're all in similar situations where the, the problem uh, uh, of the fiscal gap is, is all entitlements. All those entitlements are linked to CPIs. Yeah, Eric, I mean, I was hoping you'd be more bullish. You're not helping me because, again, I'm getting to be a sort of <laughs> But, but you know, I think what you're, what you're, you're making an excellent point. And to me, what it points to is, you know, you got you to gotta set a binding constraints here and the kind of the walls are closing in. It just, it just you know, you, like you go back to the U.K. where, you know, you got fiscal monetary policy clashing. I mean, the Fed, you know, Jerome Powell's a man without a plan. They You know, they want to go this way, but then they can't. They go that way. And it's just. It's it's I've used this analogy many times in this in in these rooms. It's like you know you and I driving a car going down an ice covered mountain road, and 
we're kind of careening from one guardrail on one side of the road back to the other side, back to the other side. It's just there's no easy answer here. And um, there'll be volatility, there'll be pain, and and you know I don't mean to be too puritanical about this whole thing. But there's no easy way out. I think you'd agree with that. Totally. I know that there are people that disagree with with me, but I mean, if we're looking for the ultimate solution to the problem, I think that uh, we have to correct the debt burden, um, which is not something that can be done painlessly. Um, and and doing it through inflation, I think, is um, impossible with the current setup. And even if it was, it's more painful than it was than than it would be um, to do it through, uh, more austere measures, but, uh, we're probably, we're probably wandering into a, a rabbit hole that we yeah, yeah, don't need to go right down right now. Yeah, Eric, Eric, I'm going to close this rabbit hole, but, but, but you triggered me. You're my new best friend. You have to come back as a guest speaker. In one of our... <laughs> this debt has to be destroyed. And I know people kind of raise up and say, Oh, George is really spitting glass now, but I actually, I want bankruptcies to occur. Okay. All these these bullshit companies that lever themselves up, you know, frickin' American Airlines, you know, does I don't know how many tens of billions of stock buybacks, and now they go to the wall because the business cycle turns down, we gotta bail them out, all right, you know, Boeing, company after company after company. And until there's some fan discipline put on the system, these in private equity, don't get me started, all right? Debt has to be destroyed. There have to be bankruptcies, there has to be pain. That's the only way you're going to put discipline on the system. And the problem is the money class, the banksters, they're protecting their interests. They'll do everything they can to prevent that from happening. But that is ultimately – so I actually – listen, if we never had another BS IPO, do we really need another $10 billion food delivery service? Do we really need another online dating service? Do we really need an electric scooter company coming public? Do we really need SPACs? This is all total garbage, all right? And the reason this happens is because there's no discipline in the system. So I'm with you. Bring it. Because ultimately, the healing will come out of that. We need to take pain. But nobody wants to take any pain in, the, in this country, in this market. We can't have pain in financial markets. We can't have pain in the real economy. Oh, my God, if we have a recession, unemployment's going to go up by 1%. And 2 million people are losing their jobs. The name of the game, the objective is not to maximize employment. We got a dual mandate. We want to maximize employment, but we also want to keep price levels at a reasonable level. And so the whole goddamn thing has been has, has been politicized, regulatory captured, special interests, and it's completely ruined the whole system. And I actually I really I'm getting hot here, but you hit the nail on the head. I think we should just take the goddamn pain and blow these things up and start over again. Because otherwise, it's a series of binding constraints. You remember your simultaneous equations in high school, you know, too many variables and not enough, you know, whatever, or the other way around. There's no way out of this thing. Instead, we got this perennial solution to the second best. And it's a road to nowhere. My view is blow the whole goddamn thing up and start over again. And you know what? It's, it's, I remember the line. I can't remember where it comes from. Um, you know, the, 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 the role of a bear market is to return capital to its rightful owner, all right? All these people who put money into these stupid things at ridiculous prices, they deserve to lose money. And the hell with it. Sorry, Eric, you triggered me. Anyway. Um, You're getting tomatoes thrown at you? Oh, yeah. Surprised. You and I got... No, because people... <laughs> I'm kidding. 
Because people say I'm crazy. People say I'm crazy. I'm crazy. I, I I was looking in the audience, and you got a lot of clapping hands. So we're all. Well, no, I, I know, TED but I'm, talk, I'm talking. We're about, all coming to your TED talk. I, I know, but I'm talking about the DMs that I get. You should see. Anyway, all right, let, let, let's keep moving here because I do want to end this room. But I think I think um, I want to do uh, Javier and then Nader and then Gnostic, and that's going to be it. No, no one else. So Javier, Nader, and Gnostic. Javier, my friend, what's up? Unmute yourself, please. Bud, you got me all worked up, um, and I'm, I'm. By the way, I'm, I'm very thankful that you allow a knuckle dragger like myself to come up here and interact with you, very, very smart people. Um, I actually have two. I have two things. I have a very simple question. One, and I'd like. I, I was going to ask Michael Hallen. Michael Belkin's still here. I want to ask him. Uh, earlier, uh, and I cannot remember who said it, it was about an hour ago. They made a point that the that the UK fiscal policy and monetary policy of the last week and the reaction that the markets have had on it. My first question, my only question uh, pertaining to that is, is that a sign to the Fed that they are on the right track and pausing or pivoting? Is it a reinforcement of current Fed policy uh, for fear that the market would react to them, uh, you know, changing course too soon. I don't know. I, I'd like to hear somebody's opinion on that. Is that a good sign for the U.S. Fed to continue what they're doing? My last thing is a point, George, very much along the same rant that you just made. Uh, the hypodermic needle of heroin has been removed from the system. We're watching the patient go cold turkey and discipline. 30 years ago, 45 years ago, when I was a kid, when I was undisciplined, I got wore out. And if I did it again, I got wore out harder. I felt pain until I was disciplined. Uh, Wall Street acts like a, a coddled 14-year-old and listening to it is painful to me. Uh, when's the Fed going to pivot? When's the Fed going to pivot? Because, George, you asked, you've already said it all day today. I've, I've been listening the whole time. You cannot create a genuinely rational bullish sentiment in today's economy without a fed pivot there's your only story that's why you have nobody up here because that's the only thing they can say fed's going to pivot fed's going to pivot leads me to my next observation question for 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 consultation arguably the last 10 years has been wrought with several different things one no increasing capex in the things that people use uh oil and gas manufacturing uh, resources. It has been pushed into the things that people think they need on their phone. Um, $10 billion ride apps, people that bring groceries to your home. Um, the, paying the piper for that just took place. Uh, global oil demand did not exceed, you know, previous high oil demand years. And yet we stretched the bounds the outer limits of what the capacity, structural capacity, could handle. <clears throat> we saw that in shipping. We saw it in supply chains. Uh, we have a labor problem, a capex problem across this entire platform of the things that people actually use, and none of it has been fixed. None there, you know, long duration cycles for capex to increase resource supply. They are needed. Um, what's going on right now with the everything bubble popping does not incentivize industrial expansion. It doesn't incentivize um, uh, uh, capital projects in oil and gas. I mean, those are three to five year cycles, George. Um, 
my, my point with this is, is an early pivot by the Fed. And I keep hearing three months, six months. You know, three months does nothing. Three months is a whining child asking for extra dessert at dinner who's been told to go sit in the corner for 15 minutes. This isn't going to be solved. This thing has to be reset. We need to have some sort of a reasonable platform where the flows of capital, the flow of capital is not directed by private equity. The flow of capital is not directed uh, by absolute uh, asinine SEG or ESG's ESG. Now, I just want to finish my point, George. The very, very smart Michael Cow. I heard him say it yesterday and I've not stopped thinking about it. He gave the example of resonance on the bridge. My question is this. With this last uptick of heroin into the system, did we stretch the bands of resonance? And are we on our way to a 5, 10, 15-year cycle where the Fed is late or the policymakers around the globe delayed reactions, asinine responses, coddling toddlers on Wall Street and the Canary Wharf? Have we put ourselves in a position? Because I can tell you this, if a Fed doesn't early pivot, if I walk in on January 15th to my terminal and the Fed says, we're out, uh, we're going to pause QT, we're going to pause rate hikes. No, you know what we're going to do? We're going to cut by a quarter of a point. Something crazy like this. You will not be able to buy oil. You will not be able to buy gasoline. You will not be able to buy lumber because the structural inefficiencies that have been created in the markets by not plugging those holes or at least creating a, a decade-long growth cycle they're not solved. Nothing's been solved. The only difference we have is demand destruction. And it's not been painful enough yet for people to learn their lesson. If we have an early Fed pivot, six months, three months, seven months, and everything you just talked about, George, if it has not broken, if people are not walking out of Goldman with cardboard boxes on Thursday because of what happened on Wednesday, this doesn't get fixed. That's my point, George. I'm sorry to rant. Uh, oh, Javi, uh, love you, man. I want to have you as the speaker in another space. You and I are, are brothers. We're totally simpatico. Um, you know, there has to be, I agree completely, there's got to be discipline in the system. And, you know, I use the analogy, so, let me go back a couple of things. So I use the analogy, I don't know if you were in the room about, you know, Jerome Powell being the man without a plan. And you got these series of binding constraints. So we, you know, on one side, when it looks like inflation is too high, oops, you got to tighten up. Then the road, then we the car careens back to the other side of the road. Oops, you're going to hit the guardrail. We're going to go into a recession. You got to ease and back and forth and back and forth. And this is kind of like the Jim Bianco view of the world. And it's accompanied by, you know, higher inflation than than the Fed would like, but that's the price they're going to have to pay. And then a point I've made many times in this room, the example you were talking, I was riffing on, you know dating apps and food delivery services. I mean, I don't have the numbers to hand, but I give you orders of magnitude. That's what's important. I think to total, total domestic, and you'll probably know the number, but I'm interested in actually not precision. Total domestic energy capex, I think is in the order of like $100 billion or some number like that. That compares to, and I don't have the number, someone will correct me. I forget how many hundreds of billions, if not trillions, got spent on Tesla call options last year. You heard me right. Talk about a misallocation of capital. And you're completely right, Javier. The only solution that's being offered now, it's not a solution, it's a temporary stopgap, is destroyed demand. 
which means when, you know, the economy starts to expand again, we're going to be right back in the soup. So we have to turn off all the mis- the, the malinvestment. That term is thrown around so often. But it's more than a talking point. It's real. People have to stop putting money into dating apps and in dating in food delivery services and SPACs. Enough. Have a putting like you said, put put money into things that we need. And I'm afraid because of the discipline problem of it you, you articulated, it's only gonna happen after there's a big whooping. So Javi, I'm hundred percent with you. All right, two more speakers and then we're done. We're gonna go to Nader and then we're going to Gnostic. Welcome, Nader. Please unmute yourself. Thanks a lot, George. These rooms have been amazing. It's great to be around people that uh, that know so much and share so much. Uh, really a big shout out to you and, and, and everybody that's a regular speaker in this room. Uh, it's more of a question than anything, uh, than a comment. Uh, but, you know, everybody would agree that obviously the Fed was too late to the party in terms of raising rates. And now they're they're behind the eight ball and trying to raise things aggressively. My question is, you know, not you know, not that I'm expecting a pivot anytime soon. But a lot of the trading is based on uh, people's expectations around it. Now, would it be more of a trading based on what you think the Fed will do or what you think the Fed should do? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, wait, so, 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 I'm sorry. So, so like, let's the... say last year, right? Yep. Everybody thought that they should have been raising rates. Right. Some of the people might have been trading around that yep. and they were late yep. to the party. Right. So now the expectation is, OK, they're going to continue to raise rates. But at some point they're going to have to stop. And eventually they're eventually, you know, potentially going to have to start reducing rates. But are you trading around what you th- when you think they should be doing that? Or are you trading around uh, what you expect them to be doing? You know, at, would you be trading around you being on? That uh, you know the board yourself. No, I, I get I get it, Nader. So let, 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 let's let's sequence these things because you know I find it hilarious if you go back a couple of months ago when um, you know the, the the Fed got they got all upset because Jerome Powell tried to discover his inner Paul Volcker and he started to talk the talk, but nobody believed him, and they thought you know it was going to be a pivot and you know happy days here again, free drinks for everyone. But you know talking to Jim Bianco, talking to other people. It was very clear that the Fed, and it was very clear if you if you listen to the commentary that came out after Jackson Hole, they were pissed at what happened. The market didn't listen to them, and I found it kind of funny because, you know, on the way up it was like, "Don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed." The Fed's easing, the Fed's easing, the Fed's easing, and then when it's clear they want to tighten because they're so far behind the curve, it's like no one listens to them. You know, whatever happens, don't fight the Fed. So to answer your question, is it what I think they should do or what I believe they're going to do? I believe it's both. Um, I really believe that they're hell bent now on, I mean, on, on, on turning this thing on, on, on trying to slow the economy. Um, I've asked numerous people about this and Powell does not want to be the second coming of uh, Arthur Burns. And you may think they shouldn't be doing this. Some think they shouldn't be doing this. They're going to break something, but I believe they, I believe, I believe it's what they should be doing. I also believe it is what they are going to be doing. And when, and if we get to the point where credit spreads into the moon, and, you know, like, for instance, I believe, forget about, forget about Kathy Woods and ARC and all the bullshit IPOs. I, I don't care about that stuff. That's not systemic risk. But, you know, the banks are relatively well capitalized, you know, compared to what they were before. Because coming out of the GFC, we had all these new capital rules put on them. So they couldn't take as much risk. But eventually, you know, 
you start to get enough of an economic downturn, spreads start to blow out. Um, they've got a lot of loans out to uh, private equity that they can be called on, blah, 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 blah. You know, eventually, if and when it starts to call into question the integrity of the financial system, yeah, they will pivot and they will blink. But it's not their job to guarantee that NASDAQ goes up 20% a year. And going back to what Javier was saying, people, they think they're entitled to that. And so to answer your question, my answer, I believe it's what they're going to do. I believe it's what they should do. And when we get to the point where it becomes sufficiently perilous that we've got systemic risk, you know, facing us, they will blink. But exactly what level that's going to come from, I don't know. I'd point out to you that probably 90% of the people out there would have thought that if you told them, you know, uh, at the turn of the year that rates would be where they are. You know, it's hilarious. Someone was talking earlier in the room. No, it was it was go back to the very beginning when Mr. Blonde was talking about expected rates to go up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I remember when the bond yield was like 120 a year ago. If someone had told you that, you know, the, the tenure will be at 390, your mortgages will be through 7%, and the dollar would be at 114, you'd be like, it must be the end of the world. Well, guess what? It's not so, so far. And so what I'm saying is I think people are guilty of I, 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 I wait for the cards to come out to be dealt out of the deck. Let's see how long it takes for this to blow up. So to answer your question, I'm sorry to rant. I think it's what they're going to do, and I think it's what they should do. So I hope that helps. Um, let's go down to yeah, Gnostic, I leave the last question to you. The floor is yours, Gnostic. Please unmute yourself. Paul, I'm a little annoyed at Javier. He took my rant. Congratulations, Javier. You basically said everything I was going to say. Um, so I'm left with a, a, with a very calm presentation uh, of sitting down and saying, you know, the, the people here, great. The, the discussion, tremendous. Love what we learned here. To sort of answer Nader's question, uh, I try and anticipate what the Fed will do and where it's going to go. And I look at the market and I try to mediate in between. And when I get really confused and lost, I go for a drink and do nothing. Uh, and I've been doing nothing for about two months now. Uh, and it's really hard to do nothing. Uh, but I think that in that environment where I cannot decide, I cannot see what's happening, what I want to happen always distorts my view. I always lose money when I do that, when I, I have to look at what is happening. And it, basically the person that answered my question before, when I was looking for futures, I forget who it was, says, you know, I, I just try to survive. Um, and yeah, that's the same with me. I just try to survive and try to figure out where to go down the road. Javier's answer, I, I do mining, oil and gas, all of, all the stuff everybody's talking about to sit down and put the stuff into the things. We can't do anything right now. And when the government comes up and says to me by 2030, we want electric vehicles going forward from 2030 to 2050, I look at what's going to happen with oil and gas and go, why would I want to invest in something that's going to take 15 to 20 years uh, to return all the capital out of it? Uh, I, I'm not going to do that. So Javier, what Javier is saying is the investment just is not taking place and will not take place until the policy switches around to allow people to sit down and actually get their money back. I, all I want, all, all I want really is my money back. The, the bonus is a dividend, uh, an increase, a capital increase. All of that is really great. But my primary concern, number one, number two, number three, and number four on my investments is to get my capital back at some point 
And when there's restrictions on how I'm going to get my capital back, like we're going to destroy oil consumption and gas consumption and all the rest of it, I don't see how I'm going to get my capital back. So I'm not going to write the check. Gnostic, 100%. You know, it reminds me, there was a wise old uh, investment strategy still around, Andrew Smithers, and uh, I'm going to get it wrong, but he had the Holy Trinity and an encapsulate of investing and encapsulate what Javier was saying. And I'm going to butcher it, so I apologize in advance. But it was something along the lines of, without action, you're going to have a crisis. And without a crisis, there's no action. So no action, you're going to have a crisis. So basically, because Javier, no one wants to get, no one wants any discipline. And I don't want to get into motives. I don't want to make this a political motivated room. I mean, the conspiracy theorists out there who think it's deliberate, and there are other people just think it's who it's you know it's good, it's well intended but misguided uh, ESG stuff, whatever. Let's not let's not get into politics. Let's just talk about what the outgrowth of a policy is. We are in a collision course for some really bad outcomes here, and and because nobody wants discipline, nobody wants to make a sacrifice. The sort of inevitable outcome, logically, from where I sit, is it's going to end badly. And that's how we're going to get the reset. And, you know, no soft landing for you. Not not you, Javi. I'm just talking investors generally. To the investor class, no softish landing for you. No Goldilocks, no Tina, no FOMO. And as was said in this room some months ago, I can't remember who said it, but Investors are going to get an education. They are getting an education. The only question is, how expensive is it going to be? You can either, you know, read about in a textbook and learn your financial history and study cycles. Or you can, you know, instead of learning by precept, as my father would say, learn by experience and have Mr. Market school you. And I'm afraid that there are large portions of the, of, of the investing public that are going to get, they are getting, and continue to get, especially, he left the room, but the fellow who was in here a little while ago talking about how, uh, you know, the, the, his clients don't, you know, they've, they've been, they've, they've bought this, you know, 10% long-term Jeremy Siegel, please call your office spiel. And Mr. Market's going to punish them. And I hate to say it, and people are going to hate on me, but that's what's, that's what's happening. That's what's going to happen. So Gnostic, you, uh, you, you down for that? Oh, I'm just going to as much cash as I can get. And I think I'm just going to find a nice little bungalow on a beach somewhere and just uh, enjoy the fall. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. And, uh, you know, the first it's 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 I'll, I'll, I'll end with one thing. One thing. Oh, oh George. Yeah. Let, let me just add one more element to that. Please. It sounds like I'm going to enjoy sitting on the beach, but I'm probably going to get beaten up by my partner rather badly as she sits down and says, you know, you're the most miserable person everywhere. You keep reaching for your computer. Take your damn computer, put it away. I'm giving it in the hotel. And you're going to sit here until you finally stop twitching. <laughs> Last thing I'll say, and, you know, we got so many smart people in this room, you know, Javier, Belka, Gnostic, Eric, Rob, Nader. I mean, just and those that, that were that have already left. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I, I'm just, I got to tell you something. I am, I am truly humbled. I am flattered. I am tickled pink. I am honored to be with all you people. Because you want to know something? I do this. I learn so much myself. I learn from all of you. And I think one of the real strengths of these exercises is we have a real community here. People with disparate points of view, different experiences. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. We learn from each other. It's fantastic. 
That's why I come to these rooms. That's why I do these rooms. I suspect that's why a lot of you do these rooms. Last thing I was going to say, um, Gnostic, back to you. You know, um, I think it was Dennis Gartman. Um, and people throw it to me as a Gartman, but he's got his 20 trading rules are actually pretty good. And one of them is do more of what's working and less of what's not working. In other words, Nave, you're a trader. So, you know, put your, put your, put your opinion by check it at the door. As one always says, there's your beliefs and there's your portfolio. Check your opinion by the door and just trade what you see, not what you think. Trade what you see, not what you think. Do more of what's working, not uh, less of what's not working. So, like, you know, if you keep saying to yourself, I got to put money to work, got to put money to work. And the last five times you did it, you lost money. I think this sort of Pavlovian experience would, would instruct you that you shouldn't be putting money to work. And conversely, you take a shot on the short side, you make money. It's like, hmm, that worked. Or, Gnostic's point, you put it all in cash, and you can make 4% now. And you know how you're getting rich, Gnostic? You know this. And I've used this line before as well. We all tend to keep score in terms of financial capital. There's something that's far more precious than financial capital. It's mental capital. When you get confused and you don't know what's going on, gee, I thought the market should do this, but it did that, and vice versa. You need to clear enough shelf space in your brain. You got to detach. You got to go to Gnostic speech. To, and only then will you get the clarity of thought. It'll come to you as to what's going on. And we're all used to this sort of frenetic number go up type of market the last umpteen years. It's over. It's done. It's over. So my, my advice to everyone, I'm not saying you got to go short, but I've been saying all year long, equities represent return for your risk. I still maintain that view, especially now that there is an alternative. It's 4% cash. You know, ask yourself this question. If you're Gnostic and you go 4% cash, how much, so you'll be up 1.3% for the next uh, three months from now and the end of the year. Gee, it's a good thing the economy's not getting worse. Gee, it's a good thing rates haven't been going up. Gee, it's a good thing that it's not about to get cold in Europe and we'll see what Putin does. Gee, it's a good thing Putin's not a cornered animal, might do something crazy. Gee, it's a good thing credit spreads aren't widening out. Gee, it's a good thing we're not going to possibly get a lot of tax loss selling. By the way, I think you're going to see an epic amount of tax loss selling in hedge fund redemptions in the fourth quarter of this year. And that ain't in your dividend discount model either. So armed with all that, and again, the future's unknowable. You want to take Gnostic's 4.3% annualized return between now and January 1, and you'll be able to think clearly, you'll enjoy yourself this fall, or you feel lucky, punk. In the last five trades you did trying to get long something because you had to put money to work, you lost money. I think everyone, that's a pretty simple question to answer. So on that happy note, um, we're gonna put we're gonna close this room. We've been going three hours and fifteen minutes. I want to thank Michael Belkin, Gnostic, Javier, Rob, everybody. This has been unbelievable. This room, and we just go from strength to strength. So again, stay safe. Um, you know, prices will fluctuate. There's gonna be a lot of excitement out there. And Javier, I want to get you in a room. Uh, we need to talk energy, um, and so. You know, hopefully we'll do that. I'll send you a Bloomberg tomorrow. All right, we'll we'll, we'll definitely do that. I'll send, I'll send uh, you a Bloomberg tomorrow. 
hundred percent. So again, everyone stay safe. Good night. It's been fantastic. We'll do it again. Be well, take care guys.